Welcome to episode 140 of the Ram Nintendo Podcast. I'm Jason. And I'm Angel. And if you hear any background rain, it's because we're coming to you either from a rainforest, from inside Nintendo in Seattle, or, the actual answer, it's raining in LA, because it happens once in a blue moon, and it happened to happen when we're recording. So if you hear the gentle pitter-patter behind us, that is what it is. It is not your speaker or your headphone dying. It is water falling from the sky. Just so you know. Just so you know. And of course, it stopped as soon as I said that, so nature's on our side. Anyway... Welcome to episode 140. Uh, this episode is called Plumber on the Run because at the tail end of the show, or towards the tail end, we're going to have our full impressions of the IT mobile game of the moment, Super Mario Run. It's also our final episode of 2016, which in many ways is a lot like every episode we've had in 2016, in which um, we're going to talk about Nintendo's Universal Theme Park. We're going to talk about some new Switch rumors. We're going to talk about some new sales numbers. We're going to talk about the latest on Pokemon, both in regards to Sun and Moon and Pokemon Go. And, of course, like I said, uh, we have Mario Run impressions. So it's kind of everything you've seen in the last half of 2016 bundled up in one more episode that we're going to cram in at the end of the year. Plus, uh, we're going to wrap up the episode with our picks for the 2016 games of the year for Angel and myself. So use those timestamps for anything you're particularly interested in or just come along for the full ride and i mean ride literally because topic number one is universal so Yay. that is the sound you make on a ride yes but yeah so Actually, don't really make i no, not you personally a person yeah i don't either i just sit there smile it's weird because i just sit there smiling without even like smile. making a noise yeah you look like you hate yourself on rides but you're like the biggest one of the biggest theme, bu- theme park buffs i know so yeah, it's kind of enjoy weird. them but, but yeah you yeah. just kind of stare forward as if you're like looking at a piece of art anyway you'll have plenty of opportunity to do that in 2020 because i'm experiencing the art ah yes you're thinking critically about it yeah that's what you do when you're on a, on a theme you're park. experiencing art that's true and the new art you can experience in 2020 over in japan is nintendo's park because literally hours after we posted our last episode nintendo universal decided that 10 o'clock at p.m pacific time on sunday was a great time to announce the first details on the actual first theme park they're well, doing what time together would that be in japan like 9 a.m it makes sense but <laughs> um, but for us it doesn't it's called uh super nintendo world uh it's coming oh, to you universal. mean a whole theme park based around the super nintendo like classic like donkey kong country super mario world super metroid anything with super in it also uniracers and there's a whole Uniracers tightrope that you can ride. No, uh, based on no, it's more like a super form of Nintendo World, not a Super Nintendo World. It's it is a confusing title, but yeah, uh, it's coming to Universal Japan in time for the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo. So that is soon. Uh, before we, well, relatively soon in the grand scheme of things. Before we proceed, though, a quick pat on our backs. I just have to because when Nintendo World changed their name to Nintendo NY at the beginning of 2016 over in New York. One of us, both of us, many people were saying um, that it means the names could be used for the theme park. And sure enough, the name was then used for the theme park. So round of applause to everyone who predicted that. Anyway, now that that's out of the way, official details are a bit scarce. Uh, What we know is it'll feature, quote, state-of-the-art rides, interactive areas, shops, and restaurants, all featuring Nintendo's most popular characters and games. They claim the park is going to lean pretty much on town mainstays, so it's mostly Mario, but they also say there will be other globally popular characters involved, although based on the one piece of concept art they put out, it is like all Mario. 
So well, and then when it's a globally popular character, they mean multiple characters in the Mario universe who are popular and Donkey Kong, which is practically Mario universe. Yeah, but no, I mean like there's no Zelda in the artwork. There's no Kirby. There's no um, Metroid. Metroid. Star well, there Nintendo doesn't even recognize that Metroid has anniversaries, so I don't expect them to be able to ride around it. But there's no Star Fox. They there's no Pikmin. A, there's no Pokemon. There's a famous no... theme for the 3DS this year. That's about it. And they released Federation Force, which many people have chosen to forget. In fact, I just remembered that came out this year. We were picking our games of the year before the show. I completely forgot Federation Force was a thing. Wow. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so that that's kind of what Nintendo has officially put out. And like I said, they do have concept art out. So naturally, the art itself has opened up a whole can of worms of speculation. And uh, I don't know how closely... Did you like pan or, like zoom in and pan on that art? Because it was... There's little things hidden Not in there that, that kind of... I just looked at it enjoyed it and then moved on absorbed it for what yeah. it was because it, it's a cool picture it but usually when i see that kind of art um i try not to over analyze it too much because i mean how much of that it's actually going to be well with on. universal apparently it's almost always spot on or it's, very, it's close spot on it's way more spot on than disney like when they did the harry potter version of that for the first harry potter world it was almost a carbon copy of the real thing hmm, so because I, so. I feel like when i see disney that's like they have some things on there that are like okay clearly that's just like like okay you're not gonna have a CG creature flying around. They well, yeah, Disney care. does that weird thing like Star Wars, and they were like, look at the X-Wings flying above. It's like, I'm sorry, you're not going to have yeah, X-Wings exactly, patrolling yeah. <laughs> your park. It's not a thing. But, uh, no, but Universal's actually, with the exception of Hedwig flying over, uh, Universal's actually <laughs> pretty good while, with their concept the art. They might have a snow owl, just come by. But, yeah, so in the art, so with that said, there's actually some things of note. In the art, like, for example, Peach and Toad are seen, like, ming- like in the crowd mingling, so I guess that means costume characters are in, potentially, or animatronic Peaches, which is... A little creepy. Nice Amatronic Toad would actually I mean, be creepy. Considering they have like costume Simpsons characters. Yeah, it's a shoe in, but now we kind of know it's happening. And Which then, is awesome. it, I mean, I feel like we've seen the Mario and Luigi duel enough that it would be really cool to see a costume Toad or a costume Peach. Only if he does his voice. He's Only not. if the guy walks they, around. They, they never talk. Like, they could one up Disney and everyone else if they do have voice boxes. That would be amazing. And all Toad will be able to say is hi. Uh, I can't do it again. My my throat's giving out because I'm a little sick. But anyway. Uh, I got one in, one good one. Uh, and yeah, there's also, if you look on the back mountain, that looks straight out of 3D World, first of all. Like, it looks carbon copied out of 3D World. But there's uh, all these Yoshis on it of different colors, which which uh, li- ties nice ties in nicely with the idea of uh, a Yoshi-themed ride, which was rumored back when we first talked about the Universal Park rumors in October. So now that's suddenly there. And then there's Peach's Castle, of course, which also in the rumors was supposedly the entryway into the park, and sure enough, bottom of the picture. The one that interests you the most, I bet, though, is that Bowser Castle yeah, in the top the corner. Yeah. So I don't, that, yeah. I don't know how closely you looked at it, but that Bowser Castle's design is basically the one they used, introduced, I think, in Mario Kart Double Dash. They've used in every Mario Kart, specifically Mario Kart, since up through 8. So my guess is that may be the rumored Mario Kart ride in there. Because it is the Bowser Castle Bowser's of Mario Castle's Kart. Bowser's levels are always the best Mario Kart levels. Yeah, yeah. And then, in my opinion. And if you look real closely... No, they are usually really good because they have the fire. They have more obstacles in most Mario Kart levels, I feel like. I know. I yeah. mean, I, I usually... I feel, yeah, they're, they're usually the tougher ones. I mean, Rainbow Road sometimes is harder, but... Rainbow Road is more just the gimmick of Rainbow Road than difficulty, per se. Yeah. The only Rainbow Road that I felt was actually tough was the Mario Kart Double Dash. Just because of the mechanics of the driving, along with the bouncy road... Yeah, just kind of made it tougher. I mean, I the 64 like, one was just an endurance test. Yeah, which and at the time was kind of unique because no, you know, no game had a yeah. course that long. And after all the shortcuts were discovered on the Mario Kart 8 Rainbow Road, that one became a lot easier. Well, Mario Kart 8 was weird because it was like a space station too, and I was like, I, well, no, I mean, no, just, Rainbow just Road, ride but... the rainbow. Don't build, don't build like the International well, Space Station on the rainbow. Well, well that was the problem with Mario Kart 
it, I feel like, that I feel <coughs> that um, <coughs> Sonic and Ultimate Racing Transformed have better track design overall. Uh-huh. Is that Mark Rutte tried to stay too grounded in reality, for lack of a better term, because yeah. it's a video game. Right. Like, every time they have... They couldn't just have tracks suspended in midair. They had to have, like, bearings holding them up, or they had to explain how stuff would be doing whatever yeah. that they're doing. Which, maybe it was laying the groundwork for the Bowser Castle thing at Universal, and that's like, oh, they need physical... <laughs> they need physical I mean, I examples. Guess cool. like, Whoa, it's exactly like in the game. I mean, maybe sure. that I doubt it was that but, interesting, but I agree. It did kind of take Which is funny, because... Them- I remember, I don't know if it was in a while to ask or something, but they were talking about how, like, in Super Smash Bros. Wii U, the Mario Kart 8 track is suspended in midair, and in the back you see a lot of floating islands, and you're like, wait, that's not in Mario Kart 8. And then they were just saying how back when they were still in development, they still Uh didn't know if they were going to be suspended or not, so they just left them suspended. Yeah, and it ended so, up being wrong. So. Yeah. So. But, but yeah, so... They the, should have kept them that way. They should, but e- either way. Especially in a game about anti-gravity, it's like... Yeah, that is kind of like Anti-gravity, <laughs> except the stuff that has to be grounded. When you have the mechanic that is supposed to suspend your disbelief the most, you want to make the most believable tracks, I guess. You gotta suspend the disbelief within context of a broader world that makes sense or something. Yeah. I don't know. It just limits but you in the end, I feel. It can, yeah, for sure. But uh, I was gonna say, so, so Bowser Castle wrapped with Mario Kart, as we now know, because we just talked about Mario Kart. And I don't know how closely you looked at Luigi's butt. Did you look at Luigi's butt? I mean, the first thing I look at when Nintendo puts out new art is Luigi's butt. So I mean, that's good, today yeah. I was rewarded for it. Or this time I was rewarded for it because behind his butt is a uh, palm tree, kind of off in the distance, under his butt, behind and under. Um, and that lines up very nicely with the rumors of, say, a Donkey Kong course, that they'd have a palm tree. Because the only things in Mario Universe that have palm trees are either Isle Delfino or Donkey Kong, and I don't think they're building an entire island inside their already existing theme park that's already only half big. So, unless it's going to be like Tom Sawyer style on, like in Disneyland. But, but yeah, the, the thing is, um, in tandem with this artwork, some patents have also popped up that kind of confirm all the rumors from October about what rides we'll see and how they'll work and it actually sounds really cool so if you guys listen to episode 135 or angel if you remember talking about in episode 135 uh do i remember talking in that episode uh, no, I mean, we'll I mean, it's, it's always hit or miss so it's hard to say <laughs> but uh no what i was gonna say is um we talked about three rides which i kind of already touched on there's a donkey kong ride a mario kart ride and the yoshi ride and these patents line up perfectly with each so let's start with mario kart Universal put one of five patents that Universal filed for five different rides is for a car drifting game. And tell me what this reminds you of. So the patent depicts a car with two riders sitting single file in the car. The front of the car is in charge of turning and drifting. The, you know, the speed, the angle, how the vehicle handles. The person in the back has a button-based interface that controls boosts and other uh, things that you can do to affect other racers. What does that remind you of? Ooh, you got me there, man. I know, it's a tough one. I'm about to guess. Go ahead and shout your answer into your... long shot of Mark Hart Double Dash. I'm sorry, but yes, you are correct. I should host Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. That's how they used to do it. They used to take you out and say yes. But yes, it's Double Dash. The patent is literally for real-life Double Dash. There's no way this isn't the Mario Kart ride. And, and like, there's no better place for that to exist than inside the Bowser Castle that we just saw, that we were just talking about being in the render. So it matches up so well. Um... For me, I actually think that sounds really cool. Like, if it was a two-person and you compete with other people, it kind of reminds me of uh, Disneyland's. They have, like, a sort of half attempt at this with the Cars ride inside Radiator Springs. I mean, I guess it also gives you, I don't know, for lack of a better term, replayability. 
Yeah, yeah, because you, the, the, you have to go on the track twice just to experience the driver's side. Well, supposedly you'll actually be able to affect other people if you're the backseat driver. Oh no, yeah, yeah. But I so mean... it's it's different every time because you're competing, yeah. in quotes, in air quotes. But uh, but yeah, it kind of reminds me of the cars, right? Radiator Springs, California Adventure. I know you know it well, but for those who haven't, because we both have annual passes. But for those who haven't been, so how it works is it's on a track, it's on rails. You just sort of sit and let it do its thing. But the first part's like a normal Disney ride. You're going through like the shop and the police station and whatnot with amazing animatronics. And then when you get to the open road, so to speak, you go on a one-on-one drag race with another car and it's all automated, but it randomizes who wins. So the Mario Kart ride sounds kind of like that, but done in a way where you actually control the outcome or potentially can control the outcome. So it's like they took an interactive one, like toys, like arcade mania or whatever, toy story mania, whatever it's called at midway mania, midway mania at uh, California adventure and then merged it with the car idea. And then like, boom, Mario Kart. So that is cool. I'm actually excited for that if that patent ends up, you know, turning out. Because it's literally like, basic. It literally is Mario Kart. I mean, at this point, it's Mario Kart in everything but name. So they just need to slap the name on and they got it. The second potential Nintendo related patent feels like it's pretty much the Donkey Kong minecart ride that we talked about in October. Uh, you may recall that was the possibly the biggest of the rumors at the time because it was the most detailed that they're gonna like mimic a cart and or a mine cart with the jumps and how would they suspend you off a track we now know so for this patent universal actually have a dual track system so the top track is what you will be on and it will actually be a track and the cart will actually move on but little will you know that there will be a hook or something connected to the side of the cart that forms a giant like c-shaped arm that goes to a track below you and on the track below you is a second cart moving in tandem but the second cart doesn't have the gaps. The second cart doesn't have the jumps. So what will happen is when your cart goes off the track, the C, this arm that's holding yours up from the track below, if this makes sense, will suspend you in midair. So it will feel like you're jumping, but you're still actually on just a lower guided track. Yeah. Kind of cool. But yeah, there's literally no other ride that would make sense for, given what we know about Universal and what they're building, except Donkey Kong. So that kind of confirms that as well, I think. It lines up too well to not be true, just like Mario Kart. So... On this is all in theory, just a taste of what Universal and Nintendo can do. Uh, they're investing in the Japanese location alone of Super Mo- Nintendo World, which is the only one they've confirmed thus far. The other ones might be called someone something else, but it is in fact going to Orlando and Hollywood in some form. But the Super Nintendo World in Japan, they are investing fifty billion yen. That's four hundred thirty-three million dollars to make this thing. So wow. it's probably going to include more than just these couple rides. I mean, they may not all be rides. They did mention there'll be restaurants and shops and interactives. <laughs> So something's up. I don't know. Like something is bigger than what we know. I don't know what, but I'm pr- I'm pretty excited. Mm. I might have to go to Japan again. I'm planning to go this year, but I'm, I'm, I might have to go again to check this all out. What do you it think will awesome. be there? What is that thing called in um, Harry Potter World that everyone keeps talking about? Oh, you got to try the honey beer or the honey something or is that what it was? Okay. How many Harry Potter movies have you seen? Two and a half. And how many books have you read? Zero? Two. Actually, you two read and a half? Okay, uh, I forgive you because you haven't read all seven and seen all seven, and you're not a true Potter person. Butterbeer, butterbeer, butterbeer. I imagine Nintendo and Universal come up with something just like they have Duff for the Simpsons Park and they have Butterbeer for uh, Harry Potter. They probably have like, I mean, Mario mi- Lawn Lawn Milk at at the Lynx Tavern or something. Who knows? But whatever it is, some of this money is obviously going to develop those as well as the rides we're talking about. So. I am pretty excited for whatever this turns into. And it seems like Universal Japan is actually going more in the game direction than even just Nintendo. They also, this is kind of a side note, but they're also getting a Dragon Quest experience simultaneously with Nintendo. Um, you're going to get to pick up weapons, go into dungeons, battle monsters, 
Oh, like in Dragon Quest. And it will mm-hmm. also be at Universal now, Japan. Now, Universal Japan is usually way more game-friendly. Like, for many years, they've always had um, Monster Hunter exhibits, like, where they have giant... Oh, that's of, right. They have, like, giant, like, really cool-looking, like, animatronic monsters that have, like, lights and sound. They move around. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I don't know. I wish I could see them one day, but... One day. I don't know, maybe. Hey, one day. Why not? Okay. I mean, you know, it's... Uh... In the case of and I don't Mario, know was, in the case of Nintendo World, we have till twenty twenty. And I don't know if it was a Universal or somewhere, but they Japan does have a like a Resident Evil experience where you're like going from floor to floor trying to escape from mm-hmm. the. Oh man, I forgot what it's called. I even used them in Marvel's Zombies. Um, Biohazard zombie. The T. T virus. Uh, it'll, it'll hit me later while we're talking about just blur it out. Different. Just blur it out with no context. It'll be fine. Well, <laughs> I mean, you do that anyway <laughs> when you remember things. Um, but yeah, so we just have to wait till twenty twenty is the one downside. Possibly even longer because twenty twenty is Japan. It could come here later. So it sounds awesome, but we're looking three years, possibly four years before we're ever gonna get to check it out. A wait that's significantly shorter, however, check out that transition is the one for the Switch. So we're now. You're still thinking about it, aren't you? What? You're still thinking about it, aren't you? All right, I'm going to help you out. It's not Tyrant, but that's another Resident Evil. No, no, don't hold me. It's, it's okay. It doesn't no, matter. I'm nope. looking it up. You're just wasting valuable time. No, I'm looking it up. Uh, Resident Evil. Just put Marvel vs. Capcom, Resident Evil. Um, this is riveting podcasting, by the way. Monster. I, I, it's Uses it's tentacles to attack. Uh, uh, what was it? Ultimate Marvel with this Capcom, one of the new characters. It say... It's okay. It says Wesker. No. That's a person, not a tentacle monster. I'll this is it. riveting podcasting. Everyone listening right now is like, why am I still listening? And I'm like, good question. Well, that's all we have to do. We have to, we want, we want to make sure, wait, why is this even relevant? Oh, that's right, that attraction. Yep. Hey, fun fact, if you go to the Marvel vs. Capcom website, you can embed on your page any bio about any character. Isn't oh, that pretty... Wow. I also that know that awesome? they've released officially high-res giant screens of um every character every character you're not thinking nemesis are you nemesis that's not t i would have known nemesis if you said n he's the main bad guy in a whole game he's literally has the game named after him it's resident evil 3 Three. nemesis in part (laughs) three like dude i would have been able no unacceptable anyway let's talk switch now that we resolved that everyone can rest easy everyone listening can sleep well tonight knowing the answer uh but yeah the switch so we as i was starting to say before we got on the nemesis train we're basically three months away from the switch coming out which is actually really soon if you think about it like that is really soon that's a quarter and that means that Nintendo's beginning to kind of ramp up um the marketing in the coming weeks so honestly in january 12th we're gonna be covering it extensively afterwards but we'll be the Nintendo switch presentation that is a worldwide thing but we now know that immediately Following the uh, Switch presentation, Nintendo's going to be taking the Switch on a nationwide tour here in the U.S. They're going to let the public go hands-on, uh, both here in our country and internationally. But, ah, there we go. But that's that's also a concern to us. Yeah. Full name is Nemesis T-Type. Oh. Uh, well, whatever, Nemesis. Yeah. But yeah, so so worldwide, you're going to be able to start playing the Switch right after the presentation in January. It affects us here in the U.S. because there's going to be a tour. So the U.S. tour is logically enough kicking off in New York right after the Switch presentation on the 12th. It'll be that same weekend. And then over the next eight weeks between the Switch presentation and the system roughly eight weeks later coming out, we're going to see the tour hit New York, uh, Toronto, Washington, D.C., Chicago, Atlanta, San Francisco, before finally ending up here in La La Land, as people sometimes call it, Los Angeles, uh, the weekend of March 3rd through 5th. Separately, 
the reason I'm rounding this off is if people want to try it separately, uh, it will also be at PAX South in San Antonio at the end of January, and both PAX East in Boston and South by Southwest in Austin in mid-March. Yes, it's in a convention in Boston and a convention in Austin a week apart. <laughs> Nintendo's Dr. Seuss. Uh, yeah, so the, so that list covers a lot of the big cities, the biggest cities, but I do find it weird that there's like no Seattle, there's nothing in the Midwest. They're kind of being very picky and choosy. And the tricky part, even for those of us who live in a place where the tour is going is of course getting in and the main tour is going to be invite only so that's the first two days of every stop then it's open to the public on day three uh i'd rather not stand in a super long line and tell some people get there early I mean, the good thing i'm you assuming got invited, it means right? well not yet but i assume it means overnight but the good thing is it appears my nintendo invita- my nintendo members will get invitations so New York area members already got them for the first two days, and day three is to anyone that wants to line up. So hopefully there's hope for us. Um, I assume it's only a matter of time before the invitations got for everyone else. Uh, we don't know the criteria of what you need to be as a Nintendo member to get... Active on Meverse. I get... Well, hey, <laughs> I, I if it was Tomo, I still sometimes play, so I'm in. But you do get a plus one. Um, but I will promise you this, listeners. When the Switch rolls into LA in early March... I'm going to do everything I can to get in. I can't speak for you, but I will do whatever it takes. And I will bring all of you hands-on impressions of this system before it comes out, whether that means I have to click an invitation email uh, link or whether that means I have to like, stand outside all day. Whatever it takes, I'm going to do it. I'm going to bring you those impressions. But please, no impressions are not guaranteed. But I will bring you those impressions, but not guarantee it. But I will. I may not. Point is, I'm excited to try to switch. And I think it's really cool that Nintendo's actually doing this active of a thing and getting it in people's hands so quickly after it's revealed so yes yeah so uh until then until january 12th presentation really uh the best we can do is continue to speculate and discuss all the hot switch leaks and rumors so let's do that can't believe there's still rumors i well here's the thing they're not even rumors anymore well there are some rumors but mostly well, well i guess they're just leaks at this point well some are rumors some are leaks the first is actually about as official as you can get without Nintendo literally putting it in a press release. And that is a full dump of all the patents Nintendo filed related to the Switch. Somehow they got out early. So we now... Now, obviously, these are subject to change because they're patents, and patents are, you know, rough ideas. But they confirm a whole lot about what we've been hearing the past couple months. Uh, there's gyro controls and rumble in both Joy-Cons. The L and R buttons on the side do exist on the sides of the Joy-Con, so when you pop them off and play them separately, you do have shoulder buttons held sideways. There's an NFC reader and an IR sensor, uh, presumably for, like, Wiimote-style pointer action in the right Joy-Con. There's uh, a touchscreen. All these things we kind of already knew, but now the patents are showing, yes, these are the plans. So we kind of know the specs now. And where things get interesting is the stuff we didn't hear about that popped up in the patents. So for first up, we had this theory that Nintendo loves... Nintendo has this like, love of plastic that conquers all, and sure enough, it's true. They do. In the patent, they're at least toying with the idea, because it's in there, that they will not just have the Joy-Con we've seen, where it has like that kind of... You know, the left and right Joy-Cons, but one neither has a real D-pad. One has kind of just four face buttons. The other has four like fake face buttons that are in the shape of a D-pad. Turns out they're also supposedly making a traditional D-pad Joy-Con that would slot to the left which would mimic everything we talked about, how they love plastic and how this is their chance to make a ton of money and it'll address every issue people have. Um, I personally am very happy so about you, this. It's like, oh, if you don't have any friends, I know for a fact you're never going to be splitting it up for two separate people, then mm. that sounds perfect. 
even if you do split up for two separate people, you can say you use the this sort of D-pad and I'll use this true D-pad, the one true D-pad. It's, uh, I mean, honestly, I like I can't picture playing a 2D Mario game with that weird fake D-pad they have. Like, it looks like a PlayStation D-pad, kind of. Not even. It's not even that, but... Well, I mean, I feel like you should use it first before you decide. I know, but I'm just saying, like, the patented Nintendo Because, D-pad... I mean, split D-pads, like, they could be just as good. The only problem is just about how clicky for, like... Well, I, man, I, I gotta stop saying for lack of a blank. Um, I don't think you've said that much I've used it, like, three times already in this episode. Oh. Uh, but who's been counting you, I guess? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, because the PlayStation ones, um, those buttons were... I don't know. To me, they felt kind of stiff. Like they wouldn't really come back up. It felt like PlayStation's always had stiff. Buttons yeah. Well, at least on the, the D-pad particular. Yeah. It just felt very. It felt more like you were pressing on rubber. It didn't feel like you were pressing on a button. If yeah. they were like that, then yeah, I could see that being an issue. But if they're like any Nintendo's other buttons, I could see that being perfectly fine. Yeah, that's true. If they're, Nintendo tends to go more squishy. Yeah. So if it's like pressing into a gummy bear every time you want to make Mario go right, then maybe it's not so bad. I mean, a firm gummy bear, not like one of those weird melty gummy bears, but. No, a good gummy bear. I think you'll be fine. Yeah, but if not, here's their patented D-pad on a in a pat, literally in a patent. So it's possible it's going to happen. Um, the other thing that's kind of interesting that was in the patent that got revealed is we are getting an instant sharing function, much like the PS4 and Xbox One have. This was rumored for a while. We never really talked about because it it's like okay, but um, if it's in there, so I might as well mention it. On the left Joy-Con is a special record button, that little square button. And on the right will be a home on the right Joy-Con will be a home button in the same spot. So, no idea how that would work, but I assume you press it and it will fire off either a video or something to Miiverse, or maybe they're gonna expand the uh, 3DS Image Share service. That was pretty popular on 3DS, where originally in some games you could jump into the browser and it would take the screenshot from the game and let you post it to Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook. And then with Animal Crossing Welcome Amiibo, they actually integrated it into the game for the first time, I believe. So this would be a natural extension of that. So that's kind of neat. And again, kind of like gang with the times a little. Um, but the real wild part of the patent, the part I actually am most excited to talk about, this was all just prelude, is the inclusion of virtual reality. Now again, this is only a patent, so it may not amount to anything, but they do show in their patent a Google Daydream or a Samsung Gear VR style helmet that you can slide the switch into, kind of like a dock for your face. <laughs> like That's the best way I can describe it. But it would um, it'd use a set of sensors either on the switch itself or in the helmet, and that those would do motion tracking, and then you slot out the Joy-Cons, and boom, you suddenly have wireless motion controllers, one in each hand to use as VR controllers, mimicking both what Oculus kind of does, except they have, like, rubber around them, and more at a point, exactly what Daydream does. Google Daydream comes with a little baby Wiimote-looking thing, kind of like a Joy-Con. So I feel, <clears throat> for me, I feel like there's a lot to digest with this idea. I mean... Everything else the patents revealed is pretty straightforward and long rumored, but this, this is some crazy potential with a lot of pros and cons. I mean, first, like, what's your when you hear Nintendo might do VR? Like, when you see Nintendo literally patenting, we can have VR with this thing. Are you? Does that make you go like, yay, nay? What's your vibe about it? Completely different. Because my main concern right now is like Smash Brothers. What would play Smash Brothers in VR? So I don't care about VR. Pokemon, ooh, that could be interesting. First person, yeah, being like right there behind and also, Pokemon, cheering them on, and and but not exactly interacting with them because you're still just issuing commands. And and also worth noting, so it's like it's worth noting Nintendo when they have new technology does interesting new things. So just don't just think Smash, just think Nintendo's weird, innovative, crazy thought process applied I mean, to VR. That's cool. I mean, I don't know. I I try not to get myself too hyped up for these things because like I don't know just. 
that have been coming <coughs> right now. Like, excuse me. From what I've seen about VR, I mean, VR has kind of been around for about a year yeah. now. Like, yeah. I mean, like, people have been like full on developing for it, and I yet to see anything that I feel yeah, ha- have been like, like, oh, I've got to try that. So, yeah. because of that, that's kind of diminished my excitement for VR overall. So, technically, so frankly, I don't really even care if Nintendo does or doesn't do it. Yeah. But I, if it is a thing that does make me happier, because the last thing I want to hear is someone going. Oh well, the Nintendo Switch doesn't do VR, and Nintendo Switch doesn't do this. So yes. the more things the Nintendo Switch can do, the better. Because, I mean, the more people will get it, and we want more people to get it. That's so. true, because that means more third-party support, and that means a bigger user base, and that means more people to play online with, and that means more games exactly. to play online with exactly. those people. Exactly. Yeah, I will say though that so, that so that's the part that excites me the most. That there's right. more things that it's not gonna. There's more potential more if potential. they were to do it. Yeah, and like you said, like Nintendo isn't. A, I mean, Metroid Prime on that would be amazing. Dude, Metroid Prime that would be incredible. Yeah, like oh, I didn't even think of Metroid Prime. That'd I mean, cool. I wouldn't even Star mind Fox it. first person Star Fox would be cool. Yeah, That'd be like it'd be like Eve. Me. Well, I like Star Fox, you know. But Eve. So there's the <laughs> and Eve, the cockpit would be cool. Basically. Yeah, there's the Eve shooter, uh, Eve Valkyrie on Oculus and HTC Vive and probably yeah. PlayStation. It's like on every VR. You could probably go dig out Virtual Boy and there will be an Eve Valkyrie cartridge because they are literally on everything. I mean, they're already Master of Metroid Prime, yeah, the trilogy once. I wouldn't mind them. Yeah. And, and like Star Fox, if they just mimic what Eve does in terms of UI be, or in terms of the interface, it'd be great. Just, just create a brand new IP. I mean, it kind of sounds like yeah, Star Fox kind of let them down. Or imagine if EA, who has one big game coming to Switch, imagine if that one big game is a special VR Star, uh, Star Wars exclusively for Switch. Hmm. That'd be cool. Like Rogue Squadron VR. Rogue Squadron is great. Did you ever play the Rogue Squadrons? Uh, the one for GameCube? There's two on GameCube. There's one on 64. Then no. Yeah. The GameCube one that came I out with the launch it. of the GameCube. Remember, like, you have to remember, I, I was never really big on Star Wars, so uh, yeah, I definitely yeah. would not have bought an it. Right. It's really good. Just as like The a only exception being Pod Racers, but that was gifted to us. Dude, and we ended up loving Pod it. Pod Racers in VR would be awesome, even. Yeah. 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 By the way, I think, let's take a step back for a sec, because I think. <laughs> anything but first person. I mean, anything but. 2D platformers and third-person platformers would be great with VR. Yeah, yeah, no, I don't think. I mean, they tried to put out a platformer on Oculus. I mean, I guess it's like it's a tiny world and I'm walking around it, but for the most part, just save it for first-person experiences. Yeah. yeah, but I think I think there's like, I mean, obviously there's a ton of crazy potential. We we just rattled off like what seven potential games or something like that. But I think there are some negatives to VR being on Switch, and then there are also many positives. So. On the negative side, it's in my be opinion, a Switch Pro version that could handle the VR better than the see, regular. Well, see, Switch. that's part of the concern. Well, first, there's physically the size of the Switch. Never mind if it can handle the graphics. Like you got a system that is nobly bigger than the smartphone you stick in your Daydream or your or your Gear VR or whatever. Because those you put a five inch slate into a little headset and you put it on your face. The the Switch, the screen alone without bezel is six point two inches. So you're slotting like a six point five inch slab onto your face, and that's gonna probably be bulky probably be kind of uncomfortable and look just ridiculous and then point number two i was going to make is exactly what you said about the power like this the screen on the switch is rumored to be 720p right like you'll upscale 1080p when you play on tv but when you're not it's 720 that's gonna have what's known as the screen door effect where when you have a screen that close to your face of that resolution or lower you see the pixels it literally you see a grid of squares because it, it's that close it looks like you're looking through a screen door at whatever's going on so if this is kind of an added extra little thing, kind of then it's fine. Some extent when I was playing the PlayStation VR game. PlayStation VR has that yeah. somewhat because the resolution's not there. And I believe PlayStation VR might actually output a higher res than the Switch screen. And that might be, I might be wrong. But if that's the case, it means it has a lot to do to hide that so-called screen door effect. 
but it is a thing to be aware of. But, you know, even with the giant slab on your face, even with the screen door, I think there's still a lot of pros to this. I mean, one, it is kind of perfect for the Switch. The entire Switch concept is you switch between how you want to play. So you can switch between TV, on the go, VR. The marketing literally writes itself. It's just one more Switch to do. And, and I don't know if you remember, but Jimmy Fallon was making some combats like 3 and 1. I remember he said on the show or in that gif where he's like mimicking the Switch to someone he's seeing next to a basketball game. But either way, he once referenced the Switch as 3, as one, three and 1. I only know of 2 at the moment. VR would make a 3, and he would know. He was talking to Reggie. But regardless of that, um, the, the other real perk is you don't need to buy a special VR machine or crazy accessory that's $500, much like the gear or Daydream. It's just this little helmet you put on which makes it cheap, which makes it affordable, and that leads to my what I think is the biggest selling point of the Switch having VR, and that is it addresses my single biggest issue with VR as a whole, which is I don't think it's ever going to go fully mainstream as a dedicated platform. I, th- I don't know if I've ever talked about this on the show. I feel like I have like a year or two ago, but here's the thing. People don't always want to always have a thing strapped to their face. They don't want they to be don't. cut off from the outside really world. Don't. Like, we saw this happen with 3D TVs. You, people wouldn't even put on glasses that let you see the outside world because it's the hassle of having to put on glasses. Like, 3D TVs kind of bomb because no one wanted to deal with putting a thing on their face. So now imagine putting a giant VR helmet, like the PlayStation VR, on your face, or Oculus, or uh, HTC Vive, and being like, I'm going to play my video games. I'll see you in five hours, and just slotting into that. No one will want to do that i feel like i mean the switch the switch kind of fixes that because if you're saying okay i'm gonna put or not just a switch but any of these like daydream or vr uh, gear vr anything like that kind of fixes this because if you say okay i'm gonna spend 500 dollars on a playstation vr i'm gonna spend 800 dollars on htc vive i'm gonna spend i don't even know what an oculus costs 600 700 whatever it is i'm gonna spend that much to occasionally slot myself into a virtual world but not usually because i want to be able to keep eating my food while i'm playing or i want to be able to answer a text while i'm playing and no i'm sorry this silly little you can answer your text through the vr by hooking up your phone ahead of time like no 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 not that many people are gonna be like all right i'm i'm in the mood for 20 minutes of you know i'm in the mood for 20 minutes of gran turismo or I'm in the mood for 20 minutes of Mario Kart, but I want to be in the cart. I want to drive it. So give me five minutes to set up my rig, plug my phone in, have it route through the computer. Like, no one's going to do that. It's too much effort. There's a barrier of entry. So it's, so people, agen- there are certainly a, be there will certainly be a niche of people that want to do that, but I don't think it's going to go mainstream. I think Daydream, Gear VR, and something like what Nintendo's doing, if they do this with the Switch, is what will go mainstream. Because if it just comes with what you already have, then maybe you pay 20 30 bucks for a helmet, or let's even say 100 bucks for a helmet, that's a much more affordable proposition, and you don't have to use anything new. It's what you already own. You just say, oh yeah, I have a Switch. Oh sure, I'll pay 50 bucks to slot it into a thing and use VR like once a month or twice a month or every couple times a week or some, maybe a couple times a week or whatever. Like It just seems like a much better value proposition than, I'll see you guys in five hours, I'm going to go into my HTC Vive and not be able to eat a bag of chips while I'm playing. Bye. Like It just doesn't... Like what if you have a what if you have like a, a girlfriend or a spouse or something that comes in is like you know uh, hey my car won't start can you come help me you could just pause the game put down the controller versus okay hang on let me take off my HTC Vive let me unsync my phone for me in case I get a call while I'm helping you because I have but my boss is at work and I'm on call for something like it's just such a hassle but these sorts of easy to use helmets are or you know like again daydream Gear VR even switches if it comes true are just so much easier to deal with and I think that's why. 
if you look at sales of Oculus Rift and HTC Vive, apparently, from what I was reading, they had not combined crossed half a million yet. And mm. one's been out since March, and the other's been out since April. Do you or know how like PlayStation VR is doing? They have not released sales numbers yet, and it's been out for five, five or six weeks. Like, where are the numbers? So, I the accessory... We'll get to sales well, numbers in a minute. Considering it's still out of stock every time I ask... The they, probably shipped a li- they probably shipped a limited number. Mm. So it's not a fair comparison. But I will say this. The PlayStation VR is listed as an accessory. The accessory category of NPD in November, we'll talk about sales in a bit, but the accessory category as a whole is actually down no- this November over last November. Granted, Toys to Life dragged it down a little because Amiibo aren't as hot, Skylanders aren't as hot, etc. But you would think a four or $500 VR helmet would make up the difference of, you know, a bunch of $10 plastic toys if it was that popular. So I'm sounding possibly a little fanboyish, possibly a little biased, like, oh, the PlayStation VR isn't doing well, even though it's selling out, blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, the fact is, these things are not the hot holiday I am everyone thought they would be, necessarily. You don't hear news stories or see reports of, like, PlayStation, people are lining up overnight for the second shipment of PlayStation VR. Well, I mean, you good. did for PS4, you did for PS2, you did you yeah, do for I'm, the NES Classic. I mean, we're literally looking for a PlayStation VR during, like, Black Friday and recently, and we still can't find it. Yeah, no, there's still no, no. demand. I'm just saying oh, it's yeah. not this it, overwhelming... It's not this main... It hasn't crested into the mainstream yet. It's still kind of a niche gamery thing, which is fine. I'm sure VR will do great in that bubble. I'm just saying... I think it's smart that Nintendo's going the Daydream Gear VR route, if anything, if this patent is real, versus really diving headfirst into these dedicated, full-on expensive helmets that really totally suck you out of the real world and cost a lot of money, and then you're sort of stuck. Because I don't think the main... The real mainstream is going to want to be sucked out of the real world 100%. I think they're going to be sucked out like 80%. Maybe. Like, they still want to have a connection, and they want to be able to do it occasionally. They're not going to be like, I'm going to go spend $800 on a Vive and constantly be inside this bubble. Have you talked to someone that plays World of Warcraft? But that's different. You still have the outside world next to you. My my, my point, it's not like what you're playing. Shut down my phone. Oh, really? Do people do that? I don't know, but I feel like sometimes when I play Smash Brothers, like, and I really want to play, like, a few hours or something. But keep in mind, we're hardcore gamers. If, If something like... Any, if any of these VR things want to crest over to the commoner, the people that bought the 3D TV but wouldn't well, wear the then, glasses well, so they then, sold well, the then, 3D like you said, TV. it's not possible. Like, I don't think it, they'll ever reach yeah. that point. Yeah. Right, so that's why I think it's smart Nintendo's doing this route of doing like kind of, okay, we'll do VR, but we're just going to use what we already have. It already fits the name of Switch, and then we'll just sort of slot it in a box and stick that box on your face briefly. Like, it, it just seems smart. But, I mean, the VR part is a little less likely than some other aspects of the patent, I think. But, um... There is one final thing in the patent worth mentioning um, to kind of move away from VR unless you had any other VR thoughts. Nope. Okay, and that is the fact that the Switch, as I kind of alluded to when I was talking about VR, it is, according to the patent confirmed, going to be running in two separate modes. There will be the console mode when in the dock and a portable mode when not in the dock. And this matches a whole host of reports and rumors, including a recent one that the uh, about how Unreal Engine 4 will run on the Switch. This is the first time that Epic is fully supporting a Nintendo platform with their engine. Versus the weird, like, shoe, shoehorned Unreal Engine 3 thing on the Wii U. And according to some folks on NeoGAF who are in the know, uh, the Switch is going to be able to run Unreal Engine 4 at its high settings. There are four settings of Unreal. There's, like, basically low, normal, high, and, like, extreme or something. I don't know. Something that sounds extreme. Epic, probably. Uh, so it will be able to do high. So th- level 3 of 4. When yeah, you're in the dock. The, the highest. Oh, and then it will drop down to 2, which is normal. So 2 out of 4. Half, halfway mark. When you're out of the dock. So Go Nintendo actually had the best comparison for this, if this report is true. And that is, it's like if you're playing a PC game and you change the quality settings from high to mid-range. 
So you're playing on your TV in 1080p. It's high res. It's high settings, high optimization. You pull it out and you walk away, and it doesn't matter because the screen is lower res. That's so fine, but then it drops to mid range things. Not in funny. theory, that could affect gameplay performance, but we don't really know enough to say for sure. But the patent kind of matches this rumor, so I thought I'd throw yeah. it in here. I mean, usually when it drops on the so it doesn't hurt the performance of the game itself. It just makes it look not as great. Yeah, which but, I, but, but if the screen's lower res, does it even matter? Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, it's a funny thing that you mentioned that, because I remember, like, Elvis recently built... I don't even know what's recent anymore. Well, he built a PC this year, and he built it so that he could run a bunch of games on the highest setting, so Epic. Yeah. And I remember for a while, like, it was giving us some issues, but he was able to run Overwatch, that popular game that you may have heard of. You um, may know of this little game called Overwatch. So he's been obsessed with that game, and he, he likes to run it at Epic settings, but for a while it would always crash, like, after, like, 10 minutes of running it in Epic. Uh -huh. So he would run it in, I guess, the one right under, I think it was, like, Legendary, I forgot what it was called. But I swear I could not tell the difference between the two, except <laughs> the only, honestly, like, I feel like the only difference was that you knew it wasn't at the highest settings. So it was more like of a psychological thing. And, and, and at some point he was able to fix it, but not because for this kind of the same reason. Um, he wants to play The Witcher. He is excited to play The Witcher, but he won't get it because his computer can't run The Witcher in the maximum set. He could, and the, he could run it in the tier right under the Dude, maximum it's one. It's like all placebo effect, I'm no, sure. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I mean, I mean that's what I'm, you're I'm saying, pretty but... sure he won't be able to tell the difference between that second tier and the max of The Witcher because he could still run it at high settings, but I mean, that's just how a lot of it, it feels kind of like a trap. That's why I like console gaming for the most part because you get the box. It is what it is. You're kind of you just have to be complacent, just happy with your graphics. But if you have the power to constantly be updating it, I feel like even we would be constantly updating it if we had the chance. That's honestly the the bummer about this new arms race that's happening between PlayStation and Xbox, where they're doing like half steps, like PlayStation Four Pro and Xbox One Project Scorpio, like. So you have to buy a new box every two years? Or even, like, Xbox One S. Like, that had upgrades. It has HDR gaming now. I so your like, Xbox One from two I years ago, kinda, three years ago, is now... I actually kind of like those, but I feel like it's a session that they come out a few, like, a year or something, like, after. If they came out at the same time, it almost it's almost like buying different tier PCs. It's like, oh, are you a hardcore gamer that wants to get the most out of it? Oh, then get the Xbox yeah. One S if you want. If you don't really care, but just want the Xbox game, then just get the regular Xbox One. Like, I feel like that makes more sense to me. You could get your casual or whatever, but... Yeah, yeah. I guess way, there's envy stuff for But that. the way they're spread out definitely does kind of suck, because they go, you have to double dip. Yeah, it, it's basically... I mean, honestly, Nintendo's guilty of this, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. DSi, uh, three, new 3DS XL, they both had spec boost, but... For the most part, but yeah, but... Luckily, and they had exclusive games, which is even worse. Yeah, but luckily, those are usually the, the handheld ones. I mean, yeah. they didn't really do that for, like... N64 was just one. They had the expansion was just pack. one. Well, N64 had the expansion pack. Yeah, but I mean... But that was, like, 40 bucks like, by itself. Yeah, and it came with, like, seven, like seven games came with That's dismissible. It. Yeah, totally. I mean, the Wii, the Wii had a smaller... Not. That one had downgrades. Yeah, the Wii lost things, but... <laughs> the Wii U... The Wii Mini was a sad, the a same, sad, sad console. With the same price. Yeah, no, I think I think the thing that bothers me is what you're saying, that they're staggering it. So basically, if you're... Like, if we were... If this was random PlayStation, we would currently own roughly three PlayStation 4s. The original, the Slim, and then the Pro. Probably. Maybe not the Slim, because it's not a spec boost, but it, it's kind of like going from DS to DS Lite. Like, it's like, oh, I can have more shelf space now. A little less so, because it's not like it actually is hindering you. But still, like, that's crazy. You have to spend $400 every couple years. When it used to be you spend four hundred dollars and you're guaranteed a five to eight year lifespan. It's just it's just a different mentality, but kinda yeah. is moving more in the PC direction. They're they're mm. you know what they're doing is they're looking at smartphones 
and they're going, oh, people upgrade their iPhone every year. Why don't they upgrade their and PlayStation? And something to be said to like just not having your specs so close to that of a computer is because I like just not realizing that ever since Elvis finished building his computer and got his optimal settings, he's been playing his PlayStation for less and less because there the multi-platform games are pretty much on both consoles and he's obviously going to get the computer version because he could run it yeah. better so he the only reason he has to play ps4 is for three fighter five which may be partly why they're doing this because yeah, they may par- partially be chasing the pc people because with steam and the like it's so much easier to get into the yeah. same games but on one custom-built machine and you can upgrade on your own you never need to buy a console i mean obviously playstation 4 has promised breaking sales records within PlayStation's oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. own bubble. I mean, it, it still has enough still. exclusives to keep it afloat, but I mean, yeah, just just compare. Like, it's definitely night and day how much he used to play it versus now. I think I mean, between the honestly between these and what's going on with Switch and how Nintendo's kind of like replacing the Wii U, you know, within five years, I think the concept of like there were very clear cut generations of gaming in the past. NES, that's like Gen One, Super Nintendo, Sega Genesis, and then PlayStation One and N sixty four, and then GameCube, Xbox, and PS two, and then Wii. Xbox 360 and PS3, and then PS4, Xbox One, and Wii U. Those are very defined eras that I could just, you know, when I group those, when you when you listen to that, or when someone listening wherever they are heard me list those, they did not just hear one giant list of get, of systems. They were in their head were able to silo those. Like, yeah, that's this bucket, that's that bucket, that's the next bucket. Now, wait a few years. And it's like, oh yeah, remember the generation that had the the three xboxes and those two playstations and the switch and they're all like, different oh, enough to yeah. be their own thing but not yeah really. so like i think the concept of like generations are just kind of dead or dying like it's weird because we used to define it used to be always like ps2 versus xbox versus gamecube and now it's like you don't really compare switch versus playstation mm-hmm. 4 like versus stagger xbox out the games one. too much because i mean the, the generations i feel made it, i don't know if it was easier for developers but it was definitely very clear-cut like, oh, these are the kinds of games that could be produced, so that's, like, what all the consoles can pretty much yeah. run. Yeah, I think, and we, if, I think and it's if, a spec and, thing. If, and if we're going to have, like, a wide range of, like, power between the consoles, it's like, oh, so we're going to have something that only the Switch can run, but that the PS4 can run a little better, but that the computer will never have, but then we have to, I don't know. Yeah, no, I think, I think we've hit a plateau with specs where it doesn't really matter. Like... Literally, what we were just talking about uh, was Unreal Engine. Okay, so Unreal Engine 4 works on every current console, including the Switch when it comes out. So PlayStation 4 Pro will just play at like the epic 4 out of 4 tier. Uh, Xbox One S will play probably at the 4 out of 4, maybe 3 out of 4, depending on whatever. The Switch, when it's plugged into your TV, oh, that can do 3 out of 4, but then when you take it off, oh, 2 out of 4, but it doesn't matter. It's the same game across the board. Like what We've reached a point, like the, the whole argument of, oh, Nintendo's going to get their price because they're under-spec'd. While still true is not really an issue anymore. Yes, they're under spec, but Nvidia has been multiple times saying, "Oh, but porting games to Switch will be easy, even from current gen systems." It's like, well, yes, because everything's about even now. Even if you can have more shaders and more texture mapping and more lighting effects and whatever, you can also just take those back out and have the same game or have a lower res version of the same thing. It's like everything's becoming gaming PCs. Yeah, at the end of the day, that's not going to change the gaming experience. Exactly. Well, it used to be a major thing because it used to actually, I mean, obviously there are examples where these sort of technological innovations drive the gameplay. Like, you know, everything with Xbox One was like, oh, we can rely on the crowd or the cloud, not the crowd, the cloud to render a bigger crowd or a bigger crowd of enemies. Sure, that's true. And not everyone can do that. But... Like, Switch probably won't have a cloud. The only game that could but... feel like this affecting are, like, the artsy indie games that rely on 
the shadows or something like but that. But even then, like the yeah. Wii U was able to run all the RT indie games that were on all the other systems. Yeah. So it's except when Unity was glitching out, which was pretty often for developers. That's why some games got canceled. But which we'll talk about in a few minutes. But uh, yeah, no, it just seems like we're hitting a point where there's some sort of parity between everything, and it kind of it makes things easier for like Nintendo's third party struggles. But it's also just weird to see this industry that we know act a certain way for thirty plus years, forty years, is now pivoting into or i guess we're still in 30 years not 40 is now pivoting into something kind of different well times are changing times are changing but the reason i brought up unreal engine to be honest was not this was a really interesting conversation actually but it's not why i brought it up initially the reason i brought it up because i was using it uh to kind of push a different thing that i saw that was kind of cool it was paired with another rumor and you need one to get to the other and that is that unreal tournament could be coming to the switch which would be a huge get for Nintendo if so. And I think and, and not just because I think it's the only uh I think it's the only game Epic's actually would would actually release on a Nintendo platform. I don't think they've ever put a game out for a Nintendo system. But the reason Unreal Tournament seems important to me is Unreal is the embodiment for so many gamers of our age and maybe a generation younger of what land gaming means. Like land gaming and Unreal go hand in hand. Like Counter Strike's the only thing that comes close maybe and that's more online than LAN. But like Unreal is the one you used to wire your PCs together for in the nineties in order to play it. And one well, of the biggest, biggest features of the Switch, as we know, is essentially wireless LAN gaming. We see it in the trailer with NBA 2K. We see it with the, with the Splatoon uh, segment of the trailer. So we have a game that represents the demographic the Switch is going after in the trailer, doing something that the Switch trailer emphasizes being a key feature, which is wireless local multiplayer. It almost makes too much sense for, for Unreal to be coming to Switch. Too much. Too much, which is why I think it might not happen. Because the only evidence we have is someone on NeoGAF was digging through the GitHub logs of Unreal Engine 4 and found two references to Wolf UT. Now, Wolf is apparently one of the Switch, Switch's old code names, and UT is obviously Unreal Tournament. So, if nothing else, and possibly nothing more, what Epic is at least doing is prototyping Unreal Engine 4 and determining how it runs on Switch using an Unreal Tournament build. If they make that into a thing that they sell, that would be great, but, but who knows. But yeah, all that stuff about Unreal Engine was just for me to say I want to see Unreal Tournament on Switch. That would be cool. Overwatch would also be another good fit. Yeah. That's more online, but still, it's like it, it feels like a Nintendo game in many ways. Yeah. It's like, a, it's like a good companion game to uh, Splatoon. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. It's very different. Very the same. So Very Nintendo. Yeah, so uh, Blizzard. Very Blizzard. Blizzard is... Blizzard, you should do that. Uh, Actually, Hearthstone would be another... Good one for the Switch. This is a very Nintendo-y card game that is just screaming to have its own Nintendo Nintendo-fied version. As we've discussed man, many yeah. a time, because it's our, your secret dream. But uh, oh yeah, man, so, I would abandon Hearthstone in a heartbeat for something like that. Well, like, I mean, would it have to? It would have to have some sort of unique game, or would you literally just take Hearthstone but instead of goblins and whatnot, it's Mario? Yeah, Hearthstone, Heroes of Nintendo instead of Heroes of Warcraft. Fair enough. I hope I hope someone at Blizzard is taking. Yeah, just develop, just have Blizzard develop it. They could. I mean, I don't even care if they have like the same card. Like just, I don't know. Because the thing about Hearthstone that just makes it so, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Charming, is yeah. that every card has like their own audio clips. Whenever they attack, they make sounds. Like whenever, like whenever things make hit something else, it's like, I guess they're treated as slabs of ceramic. So I guess then when they crash into something else, there's like little chip aways. They, uh-huh. they crumble. There's just a lot of personality to a card game, which just blew, kind of blew my mind when I was first, like, I don't know, dismissing it. And now I'm like, wow, this is, like, a, the most, way more polished than it ever needed. 
and it I fell in love with it. So and I feel you like you just it, fall in love with it. You have an active addiction of it. And I feel like I know I have like a giant table mat for my computer of first on things to Elvith. But I feel like that's like the kind of like love and passion that Nintendo would put in a card game if oh, they totally. were to make one. So. Honestly, a Hearthstone, a Nintendo fight Hearthstone makes more sense for a collaboration than Ubisoft's uh, Rabbids Mario RPG. Assuming that comes true. And how like perfect is that? Because it's not even like violent. They're just cards slamming on each yeah. other. For, it's, like, oh yeah, it'd be Nintendo. perfect for Nintendo. But I mean, it's anyone's guess if. Oh man! Instead of those heroes, you can have like Mario, Sam. Wow, it's too perfect. Too perfect. They could just call it. They could call it Hearthstone Heroes of Smash Bros. Or Smash <laughs> Smash Donia. Smash Donia. <laughs> but I mean, it's anyone. I mean, Hearthstone's a pipe dream. It's anyone's guess if Unreal Super Tournament. Smash Brothers card battle. I don't know. No, they put the Hearthstone name in there. It'd yeah. be a collaborative effort because again, Nintendo likes to reach out to their party, parties more these days. And what a great guarantee that would be if you. Nintendo did that. Like, hey, Activision, we'll give you a ton of sales if you just skin, reskin Hearthstone. Mm-hmm. But I, I guess that's a pipe dream. And Unreal Tournament is probably anyone's guess at this point, honestly. But uh, we are getting a sense of some of the other games that are Switch bound, mainly from the indie community. So the first isn't confirmed just yet, but it's looking very likely, and that is Ukulele. So uh, Platonic, the game's developers, apparently. Spent many months trying to uh, overcome some sort of undisclosed, unforeseen technical difficulty on the Wii U. Eventually they had to cave. Eventually they announced they're canceling the Wii U version. So now they're, quote, working very closely with Nintendo to see how viable a Switch version will be. And they're going to update everyone early next year on whether that's happening. Now to me, that sounds less like we're figuring it out and more like we can't confirm or deny until after Switch presentation. But hint, hint, it's happening. That's how I'm interpreting that. You don't just... You'll just say Wii U's not happening. Let's slap a giant Switch logo in the blog post about it and hope people just are okay with us not ever doing it. They're doing it. They're just waiting for the green light. Sorry, I think. now you have to buy a console you probably weren't planning on purchasing. Well, here's the me. No, to some oh, people. Oh, to the listener. Yeah, here's the thing. I, I mean, not everyone is gonna get a Switch. Some people were probably content with the Wii U version. Now they're like, gosh darn it, my Banjo-Kazooie's love letter is gone. Yeah, it's a little... I mean, it does suck to some extent. It does totally suck. Yeah, like, as a backer of the Wii U version, I am a bit bummed that I'm not getting it on the system I thought I was getting it on. Like, that would give me something to play, in theory, right before the Switch came out. But nope. So I guess my last... Uh... Shantae didn't get cancelled. I know, you have it. I guess my last Wii U game ever will be Paper Mario Color Splash. Huh. Wow. Not bad. Not bad choice. But I do wow. kind of get why they had to cancel it. Like, this is not the first situation. This is kind of the story of the Wii U's life. Like... Hyperlift, uh, Hyperlight Drifter, remember that? That's on PlayStation and Xbox. It was, or I think Xbox, on PlayStation for sure. It was supposed to be on Wii U. Cancel. Bloodstained, the uh, Castlevania like, love letter, so to speak, from its creator. Come to Wii U. Nope. Canceled. Uh, so it's not unprecedented. Like, they've done this before, and it seems like there's just issues with the Unity engine on Wii U. Like, uh, it's apparently quite buggy. This is not the first time I've seen I thought the Unity engine was perfect, and I don't know what. No. No, it's apparently quite buggy on Wii U. It seems like they kind of made it, shoehorned it in just so they could do the Nindy program. So it works for a lot of things. We played and reviewed positively a lot of games that use it, or Milo being one that immediately pops into my head. But apparently it's just some of the more complicated stuff is buggy to deal with. So for me personally, the ukulele thing is not that big of a deal because I am getting a Switch, obviously. So I can just play it on there, and it kind of, like, they wasn't really using the gamepad in any unique way, so that's fine. But like you said, there are some people out there who aren't getting the Switch, and it does kind of suck. So what Playtonic's going to do is you can either pick the Xbox or PlayStation versions, both of which launch uh, April 11th, now confirmed, or, worst-case scenario, you can get a refund. So uh, they're not really leaving anyone out in the cold, which is good. They don't owe anyone a refund, technically. Kickstarters use at your own risk, but it does suck that people are 
now stuck either getting a version of the game they don't want or possibly not even getting the game at all, even though they were excited enough to back it in the first place. So kind of a bummer. But funny enough, it's actually not the only game that's going from Wii U to Switch in these last couple weeks. Um, so Stardew Valley, which is this like Harvest Moon sort of RPG, like it's you know sprite-based. It looks a lot like a Super Nintendo uh, Harvest Moon. It's a farming RPG, and it was in development for Wii U. And guess what? It's now also shifting, or should I say switching, over to the Switch. So we got Ukulele, we got Stardew Valley. Um, this one seems like it's less of a technical problem issue and more do with good financial sense. They didn't really say they had problems. It, they just were kind of like removing it because, I mean, honestly, for better or worse, Wii U is dead at this point. So the Switch, meanwhile, is the opposite of dead. It has a ton of hype. It's going to probably sell very well at the beginning. Like it, GameStop says that interest in it is like really, really high. So it would make sense for Stardew to get on the system where people are actually going to be buying it. So there's number two indie game that maybe that's now coming to Switch. And lastly, this one isn't confirmed, but it looks like we're going to be getting the enhanced version of Binding of Isaac called Afterbirth Plus on Switch as well. Ooh, that'd be awesome. So, so this one, this one's funny the way that they're kind of teasing slash half confirming this, and that is that the head of publisher uh, Nicholas, who is the one behind it, or Nicole, I don't even know how to say their name. They did Cave Story and all his other games and Binding of Isaac. Uh, their publisher Tyrone Rodriguez tweeted a series of seven tweets. The first words of each of the seven tweets form a separate sentence of Binding of Isaac Afterbirth Plus coming to Switch in spring 2017. <laughs> wow. So, <laughs> I mean, it's not truly official, but if you combine that with uh, all the other hints that have been dropped in the last couple of weeks and months, it does look like Afterbirth Plus will be on Switch, which makes total sense because Afterbirth Original was on Wii U eventually. Yeah. I remember that game was also like, was it going to come to Wii U? And then at some point, like they kind of tease like, Someone yeah. playing it on the Wii U gamepad, they're like, oh, that's not official. That's just, they just testing it. They just like toying with people. And it works. I mean, people talk about it for months on end. So and we're talking about it right now. So, yeah, that's three separate indie games coming to Wii U, which I think is kind of... It indicates to me that the whole Nindy scene is going to remain alive and well on Switch, which is a good thing. I mean, we kind of previously talked about the fact that developers like Image and Form, behind, the guys behind SteamWorld, which, by the way, have confirmed uh, just this past Friday that they are making a new SteamWorld game for 2017, and they are making a game for the Switch, so I bet you it's going to be on Switch. So there's that, you know, and there's that, and then there's, like, Shinin of Fast Racing Neo saying they're making stuff for Switch. So we kind of already knew Switch was gang indie stuff, but it's nice to see the Nindies all rally around, especially because those earlier stories about Engine Form and Shine kind of got swallowed up by the big third-party news. But now these other guys are coming forward, so it, it, it's cool to see that the Nindy thing is not going away because Nindies, for better or worse, they are what carried the Wii U outside Nintendo's own games. It wasn't third parties. There were no third parties, but like you know, stuff like Shovel Knight and Fast Racing Neo and all all of that. There's a lot more than I've been thinking. Of. There's a ton. Uh, all the way forward games, uh, mm. all of that carried the Wii U in ways that no other third parties did. It was all the Nindies. So to have them plus real third parties on Switch is a pretty, pretty big win. Yeah. Actually, speaking of Shovel Knight, did you hear? Good for Yacht Club Games. They have sold over 1.5 million copies of Shovel Knight now. The physical one? Uh, just in general, like downloads or just copies. Is that a lot? I mean, For an indie game? I mean... For an indie game starred from scratch by developers starring from scratch because they all left way forward, that is pretty good. That's quite good for an indie game. You don't hear those numbers usually. Wow. So good for them. I mean... For a while, I mean, even now, like, that game, it doesn't really feel like an indie game anymore. It feels no, like a like, mainstream AAA managed, game. They have managed to pivot themselves from being an indie developer into, like, a big player, but they only have one game. <laughs> but no, seriously, <laughs> that like, game it's was really a impressive. lot of content. But... Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's really impressive. And what would be cool, I don't think it'll happen, but it'd be kind of cool if they did a Switch port just so 
you can continue on with all the new DLC in 2017 and beyond through Switch, but I doubt they'll do that. But that 1.5 million number actually transitions us pretty nicely into the latest sales numbers. So, Jason Sales Corner, get ready. It's been a while since I've called it that, oh, since we've had a real one. It's not too long, but MPD did put out the November numbers here in the U.S., and it was actually a solid month for Nintendo, even though the industry as a whole dropped a, ready for this, whopping 24%. They dropped 24% from this November, this November over last November. Last November, they made $2.6 billion, they being video games. This November, they only made $1.97 billion. I mean, it's still billion worth of B. We're still talking a lot of money, but that's a big drop. Um, the only other... The, the drop, actually, let me back up. The drop was kind of driven by a lack of major releases. If you think about it, there weren't a ton in November. There's Pokemon, obviously, and the other big one was uh, Call of Duty Infinite Warfare, which was number one on the top ten, actually. Uh, but then number two was Battlefield 1, which came out in October. So that's going a little ways back. And number three and four were already Pokemon Sunday Moon. So there was no, like, outside of... Like, last year there was Star Wars Battlefront and all this other stuff, and this year it's just Pokemon, which retails for a cheaper price and a month-old game, and again, Call of Duty. So, here's what's interesting about Pokemon. We already knew, like I said, it's number three and four on the chart. Combined, they would have actually been number one on the chart, and that's not including eShop numbers at all. This is raw... Raw. This is physical copies, not digital whatsoever. But what's interesting is we already knew it was the biggest, uh, the biggest, fastest launch of a Pokemon game ever, but we now learned that together they sold 8% more than the previous bestseller on the MPD chart, which is Void and Black, or Black and White, take your pick. Uh, and that's with 19 days less time on the market. So in 19 fewer days, they managed to sell 8% more, which is kind of nuts. Uh, like I said, though, we did kind of expect it to do this well, and because of that, it also led to the 3DS itself doing quite well. Uh, Pokemon Sun and Moon pretty much single-handedly helped the 3DS have its best, best month of physical software spending ever. People spent more on physical software in November of 2016 than they have spent since December of 2014 on, again, for 3DS specifically. And it also led 3DS hardware to go up 59% year over year. That's the sixth straight month of growth. Basically, it's been growing nonstop since Pokemon Go launched. In fact, 3DSs are actually having a shortage as well this holiday season, which is really, really funny. Which is really funny because Nintendo had this whole thing where they're like, no, 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 here's our plan. We're going to make mobile games like Pokemon Go, and then that's going to parlay people so to speak into buying our consoles and our real games and then everyone's like nah that's not gonna work and then it worked but then it turns like oops we didn't expect that it's like it was your plan do your plan but yeah there's some shortages happening um it, it is kind of funny but even crazier in japan the 3ds just this past week has now topped the lifetime japanese sales of the ps2 whoa Wait. yeah yeah. Is that a good thing in Japan? I know the PS2, the PS2 is the, the biggest worldwide still. Yeah. But in Japan alone, the 3DS has now topped mm. it. The DS also topped it. The Wii, I believe, also topped it. So it's not like we're talking like brand new record, but it's still quite the milestone because the PS2 was like, yeah. you know, the pinnacle for a while. Good to hear. Yeah. yeah. So 3DS, it, at the start, it's amazing what six months could do or 12 months could do. So at the start, you're like, oh, 3DS is kind of DOA. What's going to happen with it? They need to rebound it. And now they've had six straight months of growth. They're topping sales in Japan. They're not necessarily... This isn't to say the 3DS is on pace with what DS was doing. It's probably below the, that, but it's still... It's making money for Nintendo's doing well. Did they have to say how the new 3DS did? The... They don't break it down specific... Or mm. let me rephrase. They don't break 
they don't publicly break down the specifics of which SKU. So I don't know what 2DS versus 3DS is. I don't know what new 3DS versus new 3DS XL versus old 3DS is. I guess I was just wondering how that one that went on sale did. I'm sure that helped boost the sale. Another I'm sure back- part of the 15 yeah, I know they're back up, but they're back to the 180 bucks. Yeah. And I'm just like, wow, I'm glad I paid 100 Well, yeah, because you got it on Black Friday, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know the exact numbers, but I do know the other big Nintendo sales story of the month, which is the nearly impossible to find still NES Classic Edition. Um, according to November's MPD, we kind of now know why the thing is still nearly impossible to find, and that is because Nintendo just didn't ship very many. So according to the stats, uh, the Classic Edition sold through 196,000 units. That's certainly a respectable number, don't get me wrong. I mean, in one month, it sold only 24,000 less than what the Wii U sold in six months from April to September of this year. So that, that you know, that's a good number. But it's also, I think, a very clear sign that Nintendo undershipped. I mean, they managed to ship more Famicom Minis in Japan than they managed to ship NES Classics in America. And the NES Classic was announced about five months before this Famicom Mini was even a thing. And yet mm. they somehow undershipped it here, here still. Like, 196, don't get me wrong, 196,000, nearly 200,000, that is good. But they could have easily done double. And they sold every single one. They could have easily done double. They could have easily done triple. They probably could have quadrupled. I mean, they're, back in the day, the Wii was selling a million in a month at its heyday. Jeez. I don't know if the NES Classic would have hit a million, but they could have easily done 600,000, 800,000, something like that. And instead, we're worth 200,000. Um, and don't just take my word for it. This isn't just me saying this. Like, the interest levels are through the roof. Besides the sellouts. I, know, I feel like I still know more people that don't have one that want one versus people that kind of wanted yeah. one and have one. Yeah, and the thing is, like, besides the sellouts and just us knowing people, like, anecdotally, it was the seventh most Googled electronic, consumer electronic product in all of 2016. It garnered more attention than PlayStation VR on the chart, more attention than PlayStation 4 on the chart. The only system that was Googled more than the NES Classic on this list of all consumer electronics was the Switch, which was the most Googled gaming device of the year. Mm-hmm. Kind, of, kind of funny that Nintendo has both of them. But, uh, yeah, so people are looking for this thing in large quantities, and yet, no. In fact, actually, the the search traffic, we never really talk about this, but it's kind of interesting. I was reading this article, and Nintendo had quite a good year in terms of just getting their name out there and getting people interested in their products and searching for them. Like, their overall search traffic increased by a factor of, I kid you not, a factor of 60. That's six zero from January to November. So in 11 months, they, I don't even know how you would say centuple, 60 upled their their uh search like interest in their stuff and that's that's this is according to a firm called similar web by the way an analytics firm but it was the nes classic it was the switch it was mario run it was all the merchandising collaborations basically they just got their name out a lot more and as a result a lot more people are searching for things like the nes classic in fact pokemon go according to google is the most searched term on google worldwide in all of 2016 in a year of elections in a year of terrorist attacks in the year of all sorts of stuff the number one search term was pokemon go wow which is nuts so i think really the takeaway here so jason sales corner's takeaway is okay pokemon did great and it's classic they could have sold more whatever but i think the real takeaway from this little detour we're taking is that 2016 was just a full-on pokemon renaissance like go was leading the charge sun and moon then picked up as it as go went down sun and moon went up and i argue that like we're now in an era where people are looking at pokemon differently than they did say a year ago it seems like it's no longer Pokemon does feel way more important right now yes it's no longer a thing for kids it's now in my opinion it seems to have become this respectable gaming entity that everyone plays regardless of if you're young old lapsed new whatever it may be and even within the pokemon world like some opinions are changing i know you specifically 
had something you wanted to say about Pokemon, at least in terms of how, like, you play it and how you view it, because, like, as things continue to churn, like, opinions are changing on things within, as you see more people get involved in certain things and whatnot. Yeah, so. I mean, if you've been with us for a while and may maybe have caught my article on uh, Pokemon hacking and the competitive gaming world... Yes, your extra it, from it was, a while ago. Yeah, I was, ago. I was definitely, um... I was definitely for it. Not in the sense that, like, yeah, I'm gonna hack a team and just take them to a tournament. I mean, if I were to enter, and I did, when I enter, like, an actual officially sanctioned tournament, I still make sure that I breed all those Pokemon legitimately. But when it comes to just playing online, like, I just want to... I know my stats, I know my team, I just want to build them, play them as fast as possible. That's been my my way to play Pokemon for a while because I I didn't want to deal with the hacking. I didn't want to deal with... I didn't want to deal with a lot of that fluff that would get in the way of just the battling. Just wanted to get right into it. But... Yeah, that was like just like reading up on how like Pokemon Sun and Moon is the most hacked game, a bunch of Which by the way further proves this really is the year of Pokemon. Yeah. Sun and Moon is now the most hacked Pokemon ever. Which makes sense. I mean more people are playing Pokemon Sun and Moon than they were the previous versions, more people are trying to get into it. The learning curve for Yeah, the learning curve for breeding and all that stuff is pretty high, like I'm not gonna lie. It's I mean they make it easier every year, but even then it's still kind of a pain to get in. Right. And I guess like through all of that, um, I don't know, I guess it started making me wonder, like, like, oh, that does kind of suck. Like, I mean, because a lot of people, like, do, they, they are, there are, there's still a respectable amount of people that just say, if you do anything that has to, that isn't, that can't be done in the name, that, that can't be done in the game normally, that's automatically hacking, it's cheating, blah, blah, blah. Like, no ifs, ands, or buts, even if you're using legal stats or whatever. And then someone made a really good analogy that I never thought of where, all right, if it is all about just the knowledge of the player and making the perfect team, then why can't anyone just print out trading cards and enter the Pokemon trading card game tournaments with just cards that you print out? Because you're saying that it's all about the strategy and the knowledge that they have. So the barrier of entry shouldn't be the card that you have to hope to get. And yeah, that made me realize that, well, that's true. I'm like that That's a mechanic in the game that I feel like I should respect that I haven't been. And it definitely changed me. Like Now I feel like I want to do Pokemon like right by them. I want to like, I guess just, like, go full on, like, any Pokemon I use has to get through my own, like, I guess, um, sweat and whatever, what's the, what's the usual? Blood, sweat, and tears. Yeah, blood, sweat, and tears. Speaking um, of tears, this guy's crying really hard right now. It's it raining is. so hard. Yep. <laughs> We're not being washed away by Monsoon, it's just, it's raining. Continue. Yeah, so, yeah, like, I've been going through, like, all these processes just to, like, make sure I get all these Pokemon. I mean, I'll still go to the Pokemon Simulator to test out teams, but I'm not, I'm no longer going to test out, like, hacked Pokemon on my 3DS. Like, anything that's going to happen on my 3DS is going to be done legitly. Because even people that don't hack Pokemon, they still test out teams on Pokemon Showdown Online. Because, I mean, why not? That's, yeah. that doesn't that's what it's there for. Literally, yeah. that's what it's there for. Yeah it's, yeah, it's like fantasy football. But, um... That's a good comparison. Yeah, it literally is. Because you're not actually... You're not the player. Yeah. But, um... Yeah, so, like, ever since then, like, I'm just been... I'm going to do this, right? I'm not going to hack. just going to find out this Pokemon even if it takes forever because at the end of the day I'll know that that's my Pokemon and I don't know it, I, ha- I have grown to like my Pokemon a little more it's it's kind of different you get more which I guess is like the point of Pokemon like the, this is like what they kind of want it's like oh they want you to grow this bond with them and I do start to care more about that specific Pokemon I remember in X and Y I had like six Weavile that each had different variations of their moves, but it was like, all right, what kind of Weavile do I want to make this week? Oh, let's just make this Weavile, and I just make it, whatever. It just became another Weavile. Yeah. But now, like, because it takes so much work to just make one of them, 
And as I, I'm not going to go into the details, but as I was explaining Jason just what I have to do just to get the dittos that it I need to It took him six bridge. minutes to explain it to me. And I didn't stop inter- – I didn't interrupt him like I did just now. It was six solid minutes of him talking before I finally understood. Yeah, it, yeah like it's kind of how I'll get into it. I pretty much haven't even started playing Pokemon yet. Like I may have beaten the plot. I've gotten into – I've captured all the legendaries. You're talking about, you're talking about Sun and Moon specifically, Yeah, right? Sun and Moon. Like, I've beaten the, the main campaign. I've done the side missions. I've beaten the story. But I still haven't – to me, I still haven't started playing Pokemon yet because I'm still in the process of getting my ditto so that I can start breeding so that I can make my teams to battle online. I haven't battled online yet. I haven't battled the person yet because it takes that long to make viable Pokemon because I want to make viable Pokemon. I don't want to just go online and throw a team together haphazardly. So, yeah. It's it's interesting that, like... I hope that made sense. You know what? To give an analogy, that's kind of weird. You've gone from being that guy that raises cows and chickens in the cages and then sells them off to McDonald's and doesn't really know what... They're just, like, you know in mass quantities like whatever they're not treated well you got from being that guy with your pokemon to being the one that's like i'm gonna let them be free range i'm gonna name every single one i'm gonna get to know them and i'm gonna know that's betsy the cow and that's bell the cow and together they're a great pair versus just being like that's cow a and that's cow b and one of them could give me better milk and you know why you know why i'll give you one one reason pokemon to me it's not called that anymore i forgot it was called inside moon but pokemon refresh pokemon refresh you have to look them in the eye you befriend them. They reacted to you. You formed a bond. It does kind of suck doing Pokemon Refresh and looking at them and going like, yeah, you're, yeah. you're going to be useless because yeah. you're the first one I caught. Game Freak suckered you in. Your great, great, great grandkid will probably be the one I actually use. And this is why, and this is why uh, Pokemon Me and Pokemon Refresh are a thing. They know hacking's got to go up, but they're like, oh, but when they look in their little eyes and when you scratch behind their ear and they're get, they get happy, you'll care. And when you care, you'll stop hacking. Yeah. And also, the more you know. <laughs> and, and, and also, I like, like I'm doing weird PSA. And, and also, I'm, all, I'm doing it out of respect for the players that don't. Yeah, no, that's the real reason. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, it, it really does suck. It sucks having to go online and you see a team full of shiny Pokemon. And for all I know, this guy could have gotten his shiny Pokemon the right way because that's also something that takes a lot of work to get. Yeah. But when you see a team of full of shiny Pokemon, the first thing that comes to mind is like, oh, hack team. Yeah, like it. It sucks that it's, I, I shouldn't have to assume that. A team full of shiny Pokemon is hacked, but that's well, just the reality. What sucks we about that is for people who play legitimately. No, exactly, yeah. Right, yeah. Then, it like, de- like it, you're it, now it, doing, it devalues their Pokemon. It devalues. It doesn't devalue their Pokemon. It devalues everything. Yeah. Devalues their entire all the time they put into it. Yeah. Like I was making the joke about, oh, you care about your Pokemon? No, but really, what boils down to is like, kind of what you were saying, where there are people who play and make these achievements and are very proud of their achievements, and then here comes Joe Hacker who walks in and is just like, I did that in ten minutes. It's like, and I'm now exactly where you're at. Yeah. It's just and, like and that. I've never been a fan of hacking stuff. I hate the idea of game sharks and action replays. I've never, ever liked it. You know what? It's I like, love action replays when it just gave you like funny moon jump and like oh, that's those fine. Games, yeah. I mean stuff that actually like oh get to the end oh, faster. Yeah. It's like no, oh no, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, that's dumb. No, play it. Even like you like bought that. it to play it. You didn't buy it to jump to the end. And I guess kind of like well, you do what you want with what you buy. Yeah. It's your thing. I mean, I still argue that like Pokemon was like a very weird situation where it's like oh you play how you want, but yeah, but but even then like you still need to like you can't. To give a, a weird comparison, you can't, like, have seven years of pilot training and then become, like, a, or however many years of pilot training, become, like, the best fighter pilot or whatever. And then in walks Joe Hacker, and he's like, hey, I played Microsoft Flight Simulator 2003 for, like, ten minutes. I got this. And then suddenly he's your level. That's not how that works. And I realize one is real-world skill and one isn't. Like, in terms of, like, Pokemon's never real-world like a fighter pilot. But my the point is, like, 
you put in the blood, sweat, and tears, yeah. you get one result versus not putting in and getting the same result. Just you feel cheated. Yeah. So. Is there like one final comparison just that I like it. to, like another thing that I guess I just another thing just sucks for people that play legitly legendaries that people use wildly yeah. because like legendaries are they're allowed like in tournaments and not the crazy legendaries like Mewtwo like a lot of the baby legendaries like the birds and usually the ones that come in groups of three or four and those things like you catch them those are the stats they have like the nature the IVs all those hidden stuff yeah like you're kind of stuck with those but people that want to use them in competitive competitively because sometimes you should because they're really good um, you have to pretty much catch it take it to some guy to look at the stats compare them oh okay this is a good one. Oh, uh-huh. it's not then you have to re- reset it catch it again and just catching that thing, you already know the pain because there's a legendary, so you're going to throw like a bajillion balls and it's going to keep escaping from them. Yep. So you have to keep resetting it, doing it, resetting it, checking, resetting it, checking it, until you finally get one that works. Or Pe- a hacker walks in. People, Yeah, people that hack literally just go, all right, I'm going to ha- catch it, alter the, the, the IVs and the nature so it works, and that's it. And that's what you see almost every team in, the, in a lot of the tournaments have all the tapus and the ultra beasts. Because, I mean, you know for a fact, like, these people did not just catch the perfect Ultra Beast in their first try. They hack sword. Yeah, like they had to. For this many people to be using them, I feel like the game hasn't even been out that long for your, these things to be. Yeah. Doable. Like it's only been about a month. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I if my game hadn't deleted, um, I probably wouldn't even have two full teams completed because of how long it takes us to make one Pokemon. But yeah, it just sucks. sucks. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, this isn't an, another. Like, this is another bad oh. analogy, but it's kind of like. You know, you're going duck hunting with someone, and you're going through the effort of tracking the duck and finding the duck and getting the duck. And some other guy just, like, brings a duck in a cage, sets it down, opens the cage, shoots it point blank, and goes, look, I got one. That's actually a like, better one than, like, the, the than the other pilot, one. You... Than the pilot yeah. one, yeah. Well, the pilot one was more about um, like, skill oh. versus no skill. This was, yeah, but this Yeah, because, yeah. like, he still technically brought the duck, and he still shot it with his gun. Yeah, yeah, it's a, yeah. yeah. But it's just, like, what, can... it's like it's a thrill of a hunt. It's a thrill yeah. of the catching and the raising and the... Yeah. Assuming hacking was involved, it does make me happy to see that someone, I forgot what Pokemon VGC tournament it was recently, but they won without using any of the Tapus or the Ultra Beasts. They won like with using like a Hariyama, like some other Pokemon that you wouldn't think to use. So uh-huh. That's really cool. That's not the only Pokemon thing kind of being a thing. Unless you have more thoughts. No, not that. I was going to say, like, while you're doing with that Sun and Moon, like, identity, not Crisis because you resolved it, but... While you're re- figuring out your Sun and Moon identity, I've been over here at Pokemon Go, and I kind of forgot the second half of that sentence there. I've been over here at Pokemon, the other Pokemon, Pokemon Go. And uh, on the Go side of things, there's been a lot of interesting developments, too, that have led to some people being unhappy and some people being ha- oh, happy. Yeah. So, Wasn't Gold and Silver released already? Yes, people excited sort of. That? Well, funny you should mention. So what my antic did is we talked about this last episode. Oh, the girl released the Gold and Silver Pokemon. Here come Gen 2 on, on December 12th. The Grand announced it's going to be great. Well, it's not quite how we all expected. So instead of plopping down 100 new creatures into the game, you get to hatch seven babies from eggs, and that's it. So you go to a Pokestop, you get an egg, and you may end up with Togepi, Pichu, Igglybuff, uh, Cleffy, Magby, or Cleffa, yeah, Magby, Elekid, or Smoochum. That's it. That's all you get. Oh, oh, no, I'm sorry. And separately, if you're lucky during Christmas time, you might see a Pikachu wearing a Santa hat. Wait, what about Togepi? I said Togepi. That's oh. the first one I said. But you also could see a Pikachu in a Santa hat walking around. You can catch him. It's just like a normal Pikachu, but he has a Santa hat. So that's literally all they announced. Hmm. <laughs> Given how hyped 
people were for Gen 2 finally coming. You can imagine how disappointed people were when it ended up being 7. Well, 8 if you count the fact that Togepi could evolve into Togetic. So 7. Could Togetic evolve into Togekiss? No, because Togekiss is from a later Pokemon generation. Oh. Yeah, so uh, I think. So yeah, you have 7 or 8. from Yeah, so you have 7 or 8 Pokemon when it sounded like there were going to be 100. And I think we all kind of assumed there were going to be 100. So it's a little bit jarring. I mean, we are like, oh, it's going to breathe new life into the game. Because, you know, uh, like me, as an example, I go through the same routine almost every day. I go to work, I go home. So people go to school, they go home. You go to the same places, you see the same Pokemon, you get tired of seeing Rattatas, and you may be like, you know what would be great? I'd like to see a Sentret sometime. And I thought I'd be able to. Really and yet, a Sentret? Well, I'm just thinking of something comparable to Rattata. Oh. Why would they want to, anyway. No, but my point is, like, <laughs> I see a million Rattatas. What if half of them were Sentrets? That would at least for a couple of days get me interested. But alas, that's not that's not what's happening. Instead, they're taking this. this okay, I can't uh, wait for that sense to turn into in the future. Like, oh, why can't half of those sentences be be Bidoof? I'd, oh, <laughs> dude, no, no, you don't understand. First of all, it's Bidoof. I Bidoof, think is it yeah. Bidoof? No, it's, um, it's Bidoof. It's Bidoof. That's first of all. Second of all, they can make Pokemon. They can just rename Pokemon Go to Bidoof Go, and I will play it every day for six hours a day and just catch all the Bidoofs. And I'm not kidding. Bidoof is single-handedly, unequivocally, the best Pokemon. And anyone that disagrees, just delete us from your podcast subscriptions. That is called an opinion. <laughs> that is called fact. No, because chance is. Oof. No, I'm sorry. But anyway, what, regard, we'll save this debate for some other time. What I was going to say is this drip feed approach that Niantic's taking. I mean, I, I, in some ways, I got to give credit. It is spraying out activity in Pokemon Go. There are now constant events for people to experience. You know, if they dumped all 100 and called it a day, the sameness, basically what you just said, the sameness that we felt after months of the first 150, we will now feel again in a month or two with the next 100. So then we have a weird situation where, you know, it's like there's three full months where it's like, oh, it's always Gen 2, I'm so bored of it. And then they're like, hey, Gen 3, and then rinse and repeat. But by drip feeding, at least, they can keep people interested over a longer period because they can roll out new Pokemon every few weeks, in theory, and present different ways for players to get those Pokemon, in theory. Like right now, the focus is on eggs. Perhaps the next batch will do something else or require something else that's right now kind of a side piece of Pokemon Go but can become a main part. Who knows? It does offer variety. I kind of get why they do it. And, to Niantic's credit, it provides an easy introduction of new Pokemon who lo- to those who probably don't know beyond Gen 1. Like, there's a lot of people out there who stop at Gen 1. And Togepi, who's the one exception because it had a major role in the cartoon in its prime, um, excluding Togepi, all the new Pokemon are expansions on what we already know. So there's no real, like, no one's going to be like, what's a Sentret? They'll be like, oh, it looks like Jinx and it evolves into Jinx. I get it. Oh, it's Pikachu, but smaller and with little black accents on its ears. I Or, like, square things. I get it. So that kind of, it offers some new, but it keeps it familiar. I kind of get the logic of that and the drip feed idea in terms of just steady stuff. So that's Niantic's perspective on it, I would imagine. And it makes sense on that level. But on the player side, it really doesn't come across that way. Because, I mean, first of all, they announced this... Basically, this comes off like a revenue grab, cause they, or like a money grab, because it, it feels like it's for revenue. Like, if you think about it, they announced 17,000 new Pokestops at Starbucks and at Sprint. And less than a week after, they revealed that the only way to get the first batch of Gen 2 Pokemon is via eggs that are spawned at, wait for it, Pokestops. So what does that do? It drives more people and more foot traffic to Starbucks and Sprint thus giving them, Niantic, more money from the partnership. Thus, it's a cyclical little thing where they make you go to the Pokestop, you get the Pokemon, you keep playing, then you buy maybe a Pokemon Go Frappuccino while you're there, etc., etc. 
There's also the fact that you have a limited number of incubators at any given time. And how do you get more? Well, either you're lucky at a Pokestop, which again, they're now 17,000 at Starbucks and Sprint, or more likely you buy them. And I mean, yes, you can buy Pokeballs too, and those also cost money, but the number of Pokeballs you get at any one time significantly dwarfs the number of incubators you get at any one time. So if you look at it, it kind of looks like a money grab on two fronts almost. And separate from all that is also the fact that there's now a way higher element of chance involved with getting these Pokemon than with catching Pokemon because the eggs all look the same and the old first-gen Pokemon continue to hatch from those eggs. So you don't really know if you're actually going to have a Gen 2 Pokemon until you already put in all the walking and you hatch the egg. And that can take 2, 5, 10 kilometers just for this Pokemon that you don't know if it'll be a Caterpie or a Igglybuff. So it's a little... So these three things kind of make it frustrating. To Niantic's credit, they did announce just the other day that starting on Christmas Day, the odds of getting a Gen 2 Pokemon inside eggs is going to go up significantly. So Christmas through January 3rd... Oh, wait, this podcast goes up Christmas Day. Okay, so today through January 3rd, uh, the first... The odds go up, and the first Pokestop you go to on any given day will also give you a free one-use incubator. So it seems like they heard some of the feedback, and it seems like they're like, okay, let's make this a little easier and make it come off as less of a cash grab. So props to them for that. Likewise, they're also increasing uh, Holiday Pikachu sightings, uh, and extending it is originally going to end by Christmas. And the three starters, Squirtle, Bulbasaur, Charmander, they will become a lot more common for that week, specifically to help you get candy so you can level them up to into Blastoise, Venusaur, Charizard. So they are making moves that make things better, but it does this whole little tale of the eggs and the hatching and the doing it at the Pokestops and Sally Poe Cosby. That whole little thing does kind of come off a bit cash-grabby to me. Um, I, w- I will say, though, this was a very specific finite strategy of theirs this egg thing was not just a weird coincidence where everything sort of came into place if you look at how niantic did this there is no like just in the past three four weeks there's no doubt that this is not how they intended to make a new revenue stream because first like i said you got the pokestops that's where you get the eggs so you go to these pokestops and now they're all these branded things it's like oh look at that synergy then the new pokemon only available in the eggs and lastly in a bit of a surprise the release of the Pokemon Go Apple Watch app just the other day, this past Thursday, which seems designed specifically to help with one thing and one thing only, which is hatching eggs. So they basically took this like side piece of the game, which is eggs, and turned it into this major, major component of Pokemon Go, almost equal if not bigger than catching Pokemon. So I, that, that's kind of interesting. Hmm. It's not necessarily a bad thing that they're bringing up more stuff to do, but it was a side activity, and now it's not. And it kind of makes sense that they're doing it. I mean... They released a stat that players together have walked 4.6 billion kilometers. That's 200,000 trips around the Earth. So how? So you need to figure out a way. Well, what can get people to walk? You know, what? What's the reward for the walking? And the reward is eggs, because eggs are based on walking. Everything else is based on your location. So it kind of makes sense. And I did mention that Apple Watch app, and I can't let that slide by as an owner of an Apple Watch. So here we go. I'm going to launch to some impressions. If, you, if you're curious about it, it's actually kind of interesting how it works. Like, this is the first Nintendo thing on an Apple Watch, so kind of neat. Uh, I played around with the app probably a couple of days, and I've been playing around with it since Thursday. And it's kind of both useful and a little frustrating. So to preface, I have what's now being dubbed the Series Zero Apple Watch. It's the very first gen of the watch with the weakest specs. So I don't know how much I can fault Niantic for like the slowness I've been experiencing sometimes or the occasionally cut off UI since I do have the smaller 38mm watch or even the fact that at one point this really happened to me. It completely crashed for a solid five minutes. Not just the app, my entire watch. It dragged down my watch. 
notifications still came in. I just couldn't see them because all I saw was an Apple logo because it hard crashed my watch. So that was that was something. But it did. But but it did. Uh, it did eventually come back. So there's that. And it was these issues I'm describing about slowness and stuff are unique to Go. So I don't know if Niantic used to optimize it or what. But my other apps can run fine on Series Zero. So that's just that's just a thing to note. But there is some stuff Niantic could definitely do to improve it. Like uh, for example, they can make some UI accommodations to address the, the slowness. It's a really nitpicky thing, but there doesn't seem to be any indication when you press anything on the app. Um, there's no drop shadow, there's no like indent animation, there's no highlight, there's nothing. So often, I will click it, and because it's slow, I don't know if it triggers the action, so I'll continue clicking it, and it just goes kind of haywire. Again, this could just be my watch being a Series Zero watch issue, but it is an issue. Uh, what really matters, though, to I think pretty much everyone listening, and probably in terms of your interest level of Angel, is what be, the app does beyond my little nitpicks, and whether it actually helps or hurts Go, and whether it's actually worth adding to your rep like if you're still a go player if it's worth doing and the Maybe. app i think so yes i think i think it, it's kind of clever how it works so like it ties into the watch's own workout system and ios's health app so that means you uh you actually have to manually enable and disable every go adventure you go on so to speak so when you start you hit a start button when you're done there's an end button within the app this will log the entire journey as a workout which actually is kind of cool because they track all sorts of health there that you don't need like heartbeat and other things but it does also credit towards your daily exercise goals that the Apple Watch and the health, like the activity rings for those who have an Apple Watch or just health stuff in general. So it's kind of cool. But once you tell it to start, once you hit start, you're then presented with a couple different screens that do different things. So the main screen will show you your current steps, your calories burned, your time walking, how close your nearest egg is to hatching or buddy Pokemon is to its next candy. It only shows one of those little trackers, so it prioritizes whichever is closest. Um, it also highlights three nearby Pokemon along the bottom of the screen. Which is useful, but I, it doesn't. It seems a little finicky. I can't. Doesn't seem one hundred percent accurate. But uh, if you swipe right from this main screen, you get a list of all your eggs that are currently incubating. You can kind of see how many kilometers you have left towards their hatching. If you swipe left from the main screen, you have an ability to turn off and on alerts for Pokestops and Pokemon that are nearby. And that brings us to the second major function. The first is just that tracking in terms of eggs. Number two, notifications. This is where it really gets interesting. So, when you're near a Pokestop. The watch will actually vibrate and will give an option to spin the stop and collect the items. Now, I know this is what it does because I've seen video of it from people, both on Twitter and officially from Niantic and whatever, but for whatever reason, it will never fully spin on my watch. I have yet to collect any item. I will spin it. It will go like, woo, and do a little spin, and it will just stop. The animation will just stop. No items will pop up. It will just stop and sit there, and I have to close in, open the main app. I've tried rebooting, or I have yet. I should try rebooting is what I should say. I have not yet tried rebooting, but it, um, yeah, it's a weird little glitch, so we'll, we'll see. Um, I mean, there's one, there's one nice thing about it is that it's not like I already got the items and it's not, t and it's just making me try and spin an already spun stop, because one smart thing they did with it is the app is actually smart enough to only ping you when it has a ready-to-use Pokestop nearby. So if I, like, walk a circle around a block and I come back and it hasn't respawned, the app will not bug me a second time. It'll go, oh, yeah, 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 you were just here. I won't count it. Anyway, I don't know what's going on with the stops, but the other big one is, of course, nearby Pokemon. It seems to alert you as individual Pokemon are spawned, and then it adds them to that little bottom list I mentioned on the main screen. Um, it's not always one-to-one -one with the nearby bar on the main app on your iPhone, but it works well, and it does let you know when there are Pokemon nearby. It's just not quite exactly consistent. There's like It's a little odd, but it does 
one thing it does do quite well is give you a ton of notifications whether you want them or not. Like you just you just get hammered with heads up. That Pokemon. doesn't sound very fun. It it's I can see why I'll put it this way I can see why they uh, have a toggle to let you turn off the Pokemon notifications because you get slammed with them and it does it is useful. What would be nice is a filter. I don't need to know every Ekans and every Sandshrew and every um, Geodude, mm. but I would like to know when the Pidgeot was there, which I did, and I caught my first Pidgeot, but thanks to the app. So. Um, that sounds interesting. I mean, I guess it's useful because I could yeah. just like I could literally just turn I mean, it I mean, on. I mean, but that sounds like uh, I guess you could leave it open for Pokemon you don't already have. See, I that'd mean, be cool if it was like cat or but but then what if you need like I know. To, if you want candies to level up? I know that, that's yeah. the thing. Like you can't be you too need... picky because then they're gonna literally have to put oh that notification for all like you're gonna have to have a toggle for all. What'd be cool is if your Pokedex lets you toggle off certain notifications, like in the Pokedex that's on the true. Mirror. That could be the cleanest way to do it. I mean, it would yeah. still be a huge on-off switch for every Pokemon, but... but Or maybe when the alert pops up, you can somehow, when you press the alert, choose to uh, tell it, don't mm, show me this again. Like, as, you, as it comes out, I guess? Yeah, yeah, or something like that. I don't know. But it, it, what, what's kind of interesting about it is, so you can't act... It, it, first, first, it uses its own... It uses the watch's own uh, notification system. The app does not have its own special pop-up. It literally just falls back on what the watch does. Which leads to a weird situation where if I get a notification, there's a Pidgey, and I'm walking, and I'm holding a, I don't know, I'm holding hot chocolate or something, and I glance, and I'm like, okay, I'm not gonna, I don't want to, like, spill my hot chocolate while trying to press, I got it, and I just let the notification kind of lay there and fade away. I end the routine, you know, I end the workout. It's 20 minutes later, I see I have a notification on my watch, I scroll down, there's that Pidgey alert, it's still there. Because they rely on the default notifications, the only way to get rid of them is to either actively press it, which then tells you to jump to your iPhone, because you can't catch them on the app, or to dismiss it, which requires swiping down. So for most notifications, that makes sense, because you will want to know, oh, I got an email, let me get back to that later. But I don't necessarily need to know two hours later that there was a Pidgey two hours ago, just because I didn't act on the notification. Like, I kind of wish it was in the app in like some sort of unique way versus a native notification through the uh, watchOS. But it, it's, it works. It's a nitpick. Um, I just noticed I, can't, I have to clear them out every once in a while. It's not a big deal. But I know, but I did mention the one big catch with Go, which is that you can't catch. I'm proud of that sentence. Pretty proud of that sentence. That's a solid sentence. I would rate that like eight out of ten. Yeah, I mean, if you could catch it, then what would be the Pokemon Go Plus thing for? Exactly. So you need a double bandit. You need to like have two wearables, one on each wrist, and just go all in and nerd out. No, but uh, it does. So yeah, you could wear as a clip. But yeah, so alerts you which Pokemon's there. Then you need to switch over to the phone to catch it. Not the worst. Not the best. It, yeah, it feels like it's there to promote the Go Plus still. Um, I kind of get why, though, because, like, with the Go Plus, you either catch it or you don't, and it's totally randomized. But I feel like if you have a fully functional screen on your watch, you'd want to be able to use raspberries or choose different types of Pokeballs or not have it just be a random yay, nay, you got it, you didn't. So, ultimately, it'd be cool if a quick catch option appeared, so you have the option if you want the yes-no randomization. But I can see why when there's actually a screen on it, they're not just giving you that because you will want more. So it kind of makes sense. And I think generally it's kind of what the Go app feels like. Um, it's useful, but you will want more, but they don't want to give you more. It's like it's useful, but it's not really the full Go experience, which I'm sure is intentional. Like ideally there'd be a real-time map, and as you walk around, the watch would show you which Pokemon are near you. Ideally, the step count that you do in your app or in the watch, just wearing the watch, not playing Pokemon Go, would count towards your eggs anyway it not only writes to your health app, it reads your health app, so it does know exactly how many steps you take. That's a thing it already does. It just doesn't apply them to anything. So if you have a complication that shows you your egg status, which you can have on your watch home screen, complications are little widgets you can put on your home screen, um, 
it seems like a logical extension to let you then have the eggs count, or, you know, have the, the steps count towards the eggs, but I, it's not. And I suspect a lot of these things are missing because of battery issues. The app is a battery killer. So I'm guessing that more than, uh, like, technical reasons. That plus they don't want to really put the whole thing on your watch is why they haven't done it. As it is, though, it's a nice way to not be constantly, like, hovering over your phone or huddled on top of your phone. Um, I feel like I'm going to use it occasionally over my phone because it does kill my battery like crazy. But, but like I said, it, it's nice to not have to constantly be staring down at my phone with my neck turned 90 degrees. So that is a plus, and for that... I, I give it a, if you have Pokemon Go and you have an Apple Watch, you should try it. Recommendation. Hmm. Actually, you know what? I should rephrase that last part. I now only don't have to huddle over my phone or hover over my phone for playing Pokemon Go. I'm still leaning over it a ton for other things, such as the other big iOS release from Nintendo, Super Mario Run. Our episode's title. Woohoo. Yeah. So the game's been out for a little over a week now. Let's manage to rack up. You ready for this? 50 million downloads. That's million. That's 50 million downloads. 40 million of those were in the first four days, which is a new App Store record for fastest download. Shouldn't surprise you at all, given how much Apple's been co-marketing this thing. I mean, did you know? Did you know? You can ask Siri questions about Mario Run and get snarky replies from Siri about Mario Run. Oh, yes, I did. Yes, some of them's good. Some of them are good. There's one really good one. I don't think I'm going to get it. Should I try right now, or should I spare? I wouldn't, because... Okay. I feel like everyone has Hey, iPhone that. users, press Siri and ask about Mario Run. But anyway, uh, yeah, so the point is the game's doing well. It's number one on the top free charts in 140 countries. It's number one on the top grossing charts in 100 countries. And yet, people still have issues. A lot of issues. Mostly with that $10 price, which I feel like a lot of people, myself included, uh, speculate could end up being the issue and limiting the app's true potential because it kind of goes outside of the whole race to the bottom mentality. Like, we talked about this. Last episode, two episodes ago, I don't remember, but basically, like, I think it's good that Nintendo's pricing game at what they think the true worth is, that's what Nintendo always does, but you're doing it in a marketplace where people get upset because... Things cost more than a buck. Not just things cost more than a buck, but there's no super clear indication that it will cost yeah, more than a buck. No, not even that, but, um, I was just, like, browsing through the app store the other day randomly, and I thought, like, huh, Minecraft is only seven bucks, and that game is debatably a bigger more expensive game than super mario run will ever be but let's say yeah but let's say mario run i mean yeah they're different completely different games but i mean <coughs> like value wise like what you're getting bang, like what you're getting per dollar yeah. i feel like minecraft is a way better deal but let's let's say let's just look at mario in the context of mario you're getting a fourth of a typical new super mario Brothers game for a fourth of the price roughly so even if you just run with the premise of okay it's worth the ten dollars which is debatable as you just mentioned the issue is that free button on the app store misled so many people because you're like, oh, cool, it's free, but you beat well, the first... Well, that's where they change it from free to get. That's true, but it might be... Know, yeah. yeah, but it's still under the top free apps. Mm. Uh, but yeah, so what's happening is people will download the game. It's only three levels. It takes less than 10 minutes before you hit the paywall. So they do that, and it's like, you know, they're asked to pay $10, and they balk at it. They're like, nope. And I get it in that it's not... It's Nintendo's job to make sure these people are not blindsided and to properly inform them that this is going to happen. And it seemed like they did that, but perhaps we're just in the bubble that knows these things, so we knew. But the problem is, in the wake of people balking at it, uh, these players wrote over 100,000 reviews on the App Store, ma many, many negative ones, saying, you know, oh, this is only one or two stars because I have to pay, so that drags down its rating, which looks bad. And they huffed and puffed so much 
that you even see things like Late Night with Seth, uh, Late Night with Seth Meyers. They made a joke about the ten dollar price. Like they're doing a segment and they reference, oh yeah, it's playing Mario Run. They had to pay ten dollars. I'm like, what? Like it was like a whole like thing. And then it snowballed from there so quickly that Nintendo's stock has since dropped eleven percent. And there are numerous articles online from major publications, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, etc., that are labeling Mario Run a quote disappointment and saying it's quote underperforming. All of this for a game that once again has passed. 50 million downloads in a week and is top grossing in a hundred countries within a week it's not like the game's really failing it's just some people are misinformed or aren't being properly educated about it and as such are giving it negative reviews but it's still doing gangbusters so i don't know why people are freaking out uh all that said nintendo has a lot more apps to come we got animal crossing we got fire emblem their president, Tatsumi Kimishima, just sent an interview the other day that Nintendo plans, to, uh, plans to continue releasing two or three apps per year. So this isn't changing anytime soon. So there's going to be opportunities for Nintendo to figure out how to better approach the pricing. Um, some of my Nintendo members are already getting surveys asking about the $10 price, like randomly selected here in the U.S. So they're already looking into it. It's for the sake of conversation, for the sake, because we're about to give our impressions. So for the sake of all that, Given that we're all Nintendo fans, both us here on this side of the microphone and you on the headphone end, I think what's more important at this point is what Mario Run offers once you pay those 10 bucks, whether you feel it's worth the 10 bucks, whether the game's good. Like, we're all used to paying premium prices for Nintendo games, so how is it when you actually do? You know what I mean? Because, like, the, the, the conversation has been so shifted toward it's $10, but it's like, yes, we knew it would be $10. Anyone listening to the podcast probably knew it would be $10. So, is it worth $10? That's a separate conversation, but the argument about, oh, I got duped into paying, that's what's dominating the mainstream coverage of it, which sucks, because there's a good game behind there, I feel like. And, yeah. So, so with that said, let's talk about the game itself. That, that was a good preface, right? I feel like that was a good preface. It sounds like a very negative preface, but, yeah. Well, no, no, no. I'm saying, well, yes, because it did. Dude, oh, go look oh. at, like, the... It's crazy. Well, no, no, yeah, not, not, no, yeah, no, yeah, not, not negative because of what you were yeah, saying. Yeah, negative just, about... It's yeah. silly, because, like, it's just so... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway. Well, I mean, I will start so you're ahead by, of me. Anyway. I mean, I will start off by saying that I do believe the game is worth ten dollars. Like this I game, do too. this game, like this game, screams polished everywhere. Like, uh, I mean, I just love like everything. Just feels so good. Like once you start getting into like how like the jumping feels, bouncing on enemies, just like how long you have to hold it to keep Mario just up just right, or do that little spin jump in the air. Like it just feels so good, like and just how almost every Mario game, like once you start getting the controls down, it just feels so right. Like you just, you get really into it, and you. It feels like there's a lot. Oh, sorry, go ahead, finish. Yeah, this, yeah, like the game is just really fun, and I guess I like, just replaying the levels, doing Toad rallies, like you're always kind of eager to find. All right, what's another way that I could get more points? Oh, okay, I could let myself jump off from this ledge. So I could do a roll. So I could jump. So I could grab this other ledge. So then I could do like a grabbing jump because every time you jump and you get little stars you get more toads and in toad rally yeah, yeah in toad rally yeah that, that's the thing about this is like a lot of you can tell this is a fully polished nintendo release like a lot of love and care went into this thing i mean i kind of playing off what you're saying about like you do different abilities to find different things so nintendo has this thing they do with their games where you think about I don't even know how to describe this well. Basically, they have this thing where the movement of Mario, or the it's mostly Mario games, mostly in their platforms, the movement of the character is very critical to what you do in the game. Like, in some games, it's just like, oh yeah, this is the thing that jumps, and I move him forward, and that's how I get through level. He, it is a means to an end. With Mario games in general, I feel like 
Mario is the is the end. You are it is Mario and what he can do that you're messing with. So what that means is like you have levels like you were describing where there are three different levels of coins you can collect. There's pink, purple, black. Each one's notably harder. Your the idea is you get you know if you want an extra challenge you try and get all five in each level for all three colors. But the only way to figure out how to do that is to think about Mario's movement, to decide, oh yeah, I can learn, basically what you're saying, I can learn that if I roll over here, if I do a spin jump over there, if I do this other thing, there's this opportunity for a coin. And what Nintendo does that other runner games like this don't do is the levels provide the opportunity. The levels are designed in a way to, for Mario's movement, so they provide the opportunities to do these different things in different places, but they do it in a way where things shift around as the different coins appear, but they don't actually really change. Like the level's still the same throughout, but they will move. They will tweak a few things, nip and tuck, make Mario maybe do this block instead of that block. And you're only gonna realize it if you know Mario well enough to figure it out and it's fluid enough to get the hang of it. Does that make sense? I don't know how to word it better, but basically the idea is like you have to think about Mario's movement more so than in most runners. It's not just a simple like I'm going to the end, I'm getting coins as I go. You really have to be like, okay, if I do this, I'll do that. If I do that, I'll yeah, because like Mario's if, movement is the centerpiece. Because if you're running, thing. you'll feel like you're running on your regular route, which is basically the lowest one and then you see a platform way up there and you're like how can i get there i have to be able to get there because they put a platform up there yeah so just using what you know about mario you're like all right i know i can want him to that wall jump on that enemy and do some funny stuff and there you go yeah because in something like uh let's say runner three or rayman jungle run or whatever they will have stuff like that it's like oh up there i need to go up there but i i feel like it's more the, just the, like you take an alternate path and you end yeah, up there those, while those, mario's like the puzzle more... is his movement those are more like you make a quick decision, you press up or down yes. at the right time, or and Mario's I mean, sometimes like... they, I mean, sometimes they come at you really rapid fire that it comes down to quick reaction and timing. But for Mario, it's more of a puzzle. It's more of him. it's about him. That's what yeah. I'm trying to get at. It's his move. His movement is the centerpiece of the game, not you just getting to the end of the level. And the thing about that is, it means we get you know, there's 24 levels. In theory, there's really triple that because yes, it's the same basic design, but what you're doing per level for each coin is different when you're looking for the coins. Exactly. I mean. Exactly. Uh, I will say that I really, really hate whenever they put coins in instead of question mark blocks, blocks, boxes, because those just, those just feel cheap. Yeah. There, there are a few that do that, and for the most part, every once in a while they'll put coins in harder to reach places that you're like, all right, cool, how do I got to get there? But other times you go through the level, you're like, I missed it. And they're like, oh, because I have to hit every single block because it could potentially be in any of them. Yeah, that, that feels like a cheap way out, which is weird because, like, most of the game is so like Nintendo-y in terms of thinking yeah, through I mean, it doesn't have the too fluidity of Mario and what you can do with but, it. And I mean, usually based on the location of where the coin is, because every time you grab a coin, it's either going to be in the first, second, third, fourth, or fifth slot. And that tells you roughly where in the level it is. Like in the middle of the level, if it's in the middle slot, the end, if it's the last coin, yeah. stuff like that. So they have a rough idea of where to look. They're always in the same order. Yeah. So, oh, oh, the thing I was gonna say about um, the love and care thing, because I was saying how like they built the level, with, like it's clearly like a Mario game, not just a side-scrolling platform. But the graphics are really good. The 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 fact that they have little things like the notebook are a nice touch. You know about the notebook, right? Maybe. I don't know. Okay, so the notebook is this little thing you can look at. I don't even remember how to get to it. It's in the menu, but you go to it and it will track every enemy you've killed and how many times you've killed them. It kind of goes hand-in-hand hand with this idea that enemies level up as you hit them. So the more enemies of a certain type you kill, Goombas... Is that the thing that pops up at the end of every level? Because that does that. Yeah, well, that then is logged in this mm. notebook. So the game does crazy good stat tracking. It'll show you your toads, your coins. Like, you can press any person on your friends list and see all that. But then separately, you have this notebook that'll actually give you, like, a brief description of the enemy, and it'll list, like, every kill you've done and what level they're at and all sorts of other stuff. 
the, the, the leveling up of enemies is something kind of new for Mario. It's interesting. I don't know if I'm totally sold on it because it kind of undermines Toad Rally completely. Yeah. But so, so basically for those who haven't played yet, how it works is the more you hit a certain enemy, the more they'll level up or the more experience they'll get, so to speak. And when they level up, you get more coins for it. So if I go through World Tour, let's say, because keep in mind, Mario runs split into three separate modes that are actually very closely intertwined, even though they're completely independent. So you have World Tour, Toad Rally, Kingdom Builder. So if I go through World Tour and I level up these Goombas like crazy and I get quadruple coins for every Goomba I hit and then I go hop in Toad Rally, even though Toad Rally is mostly ranked by how many Toads you have, so your nearest opponent will be someone with a similar number of Toads, right? They could have played World Tour way, way more and they could be getting six times, seven times the number of coins of you who already thought you were doing great with your quadrupled coins and they'll just slaughter you and there's nothing you can really do about that. It doesn't really indicate it. Doesn't really. It kind of makes, it kind of makes Toad Rally a little like weirdly lopsided. Yeah, it's a bit unbalanced. I thought it, I thought Toad Rally was gonna be this thing where like, all right, take what you learn about the game and you're on an even playing field. If it's whoever comes out on all. top, it is. Yeah. But nope. Like I've definitely done better. Like there were, I've, I've had a run where like I know I didn't miss any coin. It was pretty much perfect. And my opponent still beat me by a huge amount. I'm like, okay, where did all these coins come from? And I'm, and I've done that level in particular so many times. Like I knew there weren't any other secrets. But then I'm like, all right, it makes sense. Like that person did have like a couple thousand toad, and I just challenged them because I thought that means I could get more toads from them. Yeah. But no, that just means that they've played this game way more. Yeah, and, 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 and the funny thing is, like the, the way I say it's all like independent interconnected. So the toads they don't really do much for you in. Toad Rally, but then those are what you use almost as currency. It's weird. It's like a slave trade. Uh, almost as currency in Kingdom Builder, which also uses the coin from World Tour and from Toad Rally. So, like, it, it, the structure of this game is very... It's interesting in that it's both a typical Nintendo game structure and also that of a typical mobile game, but what's weird is it's a typical free-to-play mobile game, but you're paying for it because you're actually paying for the Nintendo structure you get in World Tour, if that makes sense. So, basically, when you buy a Nintendo game, you expect there will be some sort of progressive single player experience where you go level to level and then you expect there to be some sort of possibly multiplayer experience where you compete against others super mario run has that simultaneously when you turn on a mobile game you expect there's probably some weird limitations on how much you can do something and there's probably some sort of weird thing where you buy one thing that where one thing you do in one part of the game earns you something somewhere else that's really completely unrelated but it's some sort of little device to keep you hooked and there's that so it's kind of this weird like mashup in that you get Toad Rally tickets from World Tour. You then use the Toad Rally tickets in Toad Rally. The Toad Rally only lets you do you know however many tickets you have worth of it. But with the Toads you get from that, you can then go to Kingdom Builder. And with Kingdom Builder, you get Toads, which then give you more opportunities to get more Toad Rally tickets, which normally in a free-to-play game is kind of the cycle if you don't want to pay for things. But yet you already paid, so why are there limits on Toad Rally? Because they don't want you to get too many Toads in your kingdom to then get too many other things back in Toad Rally. It's like this bizarro, you know what I mean? It's like this cyclical weird thing. But then to throw an extra wrinkle in it, they just added friend rallies, which are what Toad Rallies would be if they were properly balanced in that you get to compete against people on your friends list, one-on-one asynchronous. It's great. Um, but what you're doing, it doesn't actually affect anything. It's like a normal multiplayer in a normal Nintendo game. So, you know, you don't keep your coins, you don't level up your enemies, you don't um, lose or gain toads, it's just for fun. It's like what it would be if you did Mario Kart, sort of. But, 
because this is a mobile game, Nintendo did some weird things where they put restrictions on it, even though you just paid $10 for the privilege to have these restrictions, in that if you have only played through World 1 in World Tour, you can only do a single friend rally a day. And if you've played World 2 or beyond in World Tour, you get to do two or sorry three friend rallies per day. But that's it. It's just like this arbitrary cap because that's what mobile games do. So it's this really weird hodgepodge of structurally speaking it's this really weird hodgepodge of like a typical nintendo game structure and a typical mobile game structure and they kind of integrated them and then they kind of didn't so what you're paying ten dollars for i feel like is actually world tour and then world tour just happens to give you more things to do in what would normally be the quote-unquote free-to-play toad rallies and kingdom builder oh yeah friend codes are back yeah and friend codes are back why are friend codes back miyamoto promised us he personally promised us as I a mean, collective. I mean, if you connect your Twitter or Facebook, you won't really have to deal with them. Like, but he promised us. No, he yeah. promised us my Nintendo friend integration It from Mitomo. It is not there yet. But then again, it also took him a week to add Friend Rally, which I thought would be there day one. And I thought it was just Toad Rally, but you pick your friends. But yet it's not. So there's a lot of weird wrinkles. So structurally, Mario Run is a bizarre game. It's like this Frankenstein of two different types of games. However, I think all the modes within those Frankensteins, minus their limitations, are extremely well done. Like, World Tour, it is not true Mario. I think that's safe to say no one's... Ex- like, if you go into this... It's kind of what I said in the impressions last episode. If you go into this expecting a real Mario, it is not a real Mario. But what it is, is a new spin on Mario that works very well. I think. Mm-hmm. Like, what you are saying about, like, the level design. Be- and, you know, figuring out new ways to get the coins. Like, that's a slightly different Mario experience, but it still kind of feels like Mario. But, and if you go into... Uh, you know, if you go into Toad Rally, you're expecting just kind of a fun multiplayer bait. That's all, honestly, Toad Rally almost feels more like a real Mario game than uh, World Tour. Because World Tour, you become so focused on the coins. World Tour, actually, all of it really reminds me of New Super Mario Bros. I kind of ignore the fact that it really is just to grab the four, the five coins. If I don't get them, I feel like I failed the level. So. I have restarted levels many times just because yeah. I missed a coin. I could use the bubble. That would make more sense. At least I'd keep the other coins if I did that, but I never do. Yeah. Yeah, use the bubble, people. That's my life lesson to you. But uh, the bubble, you have two of them for a reason because you can actually use them as an undo button. But yeah, no, the whole coin, everything throughout the game is really reminiscent of New Super Mario Bros. 2. Like, that game was really had an emphasis on coins and even had levels where you auto-run collecting coins when you're shot out of the cannons between worlds. And that's basically what Mario Run is. It's a fully realized, fleshed-out version of Mario Run or New Super Mario Bros. 2's cannon levels. They even brought back Coin Rush. That hasn't been in any Mario game since that one. So it's it's kind of kind of interesting that like an, an idea at Nintendo never truly dies. They just fit it. They just tweak it enough until it makes the right amount of sense. Like apparently this first prototype, this apparently first prototyped on the uh, Wii, and then they're like, "There's no point. We have a D-pad on the Wii mode. Why would we do it?" So they pushed it off for a while. Oh, speaking of Mario Two, uh, New Super Mario Bros. Two. Fun fact: two point seven trillion coins have been collected in that game. Uh-huh. Worldwide, trillion with a D, but yeah. So my my the I guess the takeaway. It sounds like we're more bashing it than anything else, but no, it's good. I enjoy the game. I think each mode works really well. I think World Tour is really fun. It feels like a new spin on a traditional Mario experience. Where if you go, in, like I said, if you're going expecting real Mario, it's not. But if you go on going, okay, it's gonna be Mario esque. It is, and it's really good at that. Uh, I think the replayability is really good. Adding the coins helps with the level structure. Also, there's six playable characters, all that function slightly differently, so that adds a little more replayability. Or as, as Mimo put in an interview, in an interview uh, gameplay creativity, because you don't actually get a reward if you get the coins with each of the characters. It's just kind of something to do. Um, I think Toad Rally is really cool. 
I actually think that might be my favorite implementation of Mario multiplayer. It makes perfect sense, and the way they do the asynchronous with the uh, like the little cardboard cutout of Mario, and you can kind of trace where they're going, is actually really neat. And Kingdom Builder, I guess it's nice. I haven't really done much with it. Like I don't know what to do with my kingdom. It's it is cool that my Nintendo rewards sort of factor into that, and you can do them in app opposed to having to go out of the app to the website, like on Mitomo with Mitomo. You can actually get rewards in the app and then plop them down. And they have in-game events, as they promised. So they have Christmas decorations right now you can get, including a snow globe and a tree. So I'm hoping they do more of that, just to let you liven up your, your uh, kingdom a bit. But again, I don't know what I'm going to do with my kingdom now that it is livened. So yeah. so yeah, it's like this weird amalgamation of all sorts of different types of games. And it works well, but it has some weird quirks, <laughs> I guess. So I think overall I would say it's worth the 10 bucks. If you like Mario or you like Nintendo, you're not yeah, going to be disappointed. If you like Mario, it's worth 10 bucks. It's always worth 10 bucks, but it's just this one, it's just you can tell it's Nintendo's first stab at a uh, true iPhone game. Yeah. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not necessarily a good thing. It's just a statement. So, yes, takeaway is buy it. It's worth it. Just get ready for some weird, not typical Nintendo quirks. Yep. Yeah. I did learn that, at least from playing this game in particular, that. Uh, unless a game is something that you can play without paying too much attention on it, I would rather not play a game on my phone because if I have to put my full attention on it, I'd rather just play my 3DS at that point. Because, yeah, that's pretty much it. So, this is a game that I might... I'm going to try to beat it just because I started it and did pay 10 bucks for it. But every... It's kind of hard because every time I start to play it, and I'm like, uh, you know what? I could just be setting up my Pokemon breeding machine or playing Hearthstone. Because I it, like that. it just hasn't fully captured your attention. Yeah, because I could do Hearthstone and Pokemon at the same time, but I can't do Mario Run and anything else at the same time. You know what? And because it's a phone game, I don't know. It, it's just this weird barrier. Like it's fun, but be, I, maybe it's because Pokemon is out right now. It's kind of the same thing with like a bunch of other games. Like oh, I could be playing that or Smash Brothers because Smash Brothers is here. But whenever I'm playing Mario Run, I feel like I could be using that time to play something else instead. One thing I want to mention about Mario Run that we forgot. Let's bring it in. The friends, once you get over the friend code hump and once you get past the kind of annoyance of that, the friend thing's really cool. So you get the friend rise like we were talking about, but you also see a leaderboard of every single level and how many coins they have. So there's even more replayability in that. We went back and forth for a while trying to one-up each other. I failed ultimately, but it was fun while it lasted. So mm-hmm. so yeah, that, that alone, like the social hooks are one of the good things they got out of typical mobile games and implemented into this weird Frankenstein, and it works, and it's great, and it's really fun. So they just need to hone in, I think, on specifically what parts they should borrow from a mobile game, like tickets you don't really need, but but, but the social hooks, definitely do that. Do that with every game going forward in town, because that's actually really cool. One of my favorite parts. So if you like using your phone for games that require your attention, then I definitely recommend it. (laughs) <laughs> that's such a weirdly yeah, no, if yeah, you yeah. prefer playing games where you're not even looking at the screen don't buy it because you'll have to look at the screen but well, I mean it's a weird way to putting it but yeah yeah, but yeah so that that's Mario I feel like it's weird because like <clears throat> I guess you have to listen to this episode and our last episode kind of together because in the first one we kind of talked about the gameplay mechanics of Mario Run and this one's more like here's what's weird about the game is like a structural entity that you download as an app but yeah it's, it is really fun don't get us wrong it, it's a good game they did it they did a good job. It's, I think it's well worth ten bucks, and uh, it, they should be rewarded with fifty million downloads. They deserve it. It's, yeah. it's good. Uh, that usually would be the end of the podcast, but it's the last episode of twenty sixteen. So rapid fire game of the year. Not 
Well, not too rapid fire. I mean, we're still within our usual time frame. But I did want to say, this has been a really weird, weird, weird year for Nintendo. Like, normally, as anyone that's listened to our podcast for the last five years knows, or just as a Nintendo fan has known, there are highs, there are lows, there are some in-betweens. This year, it felt like the lows and the in-betweens were barely there. Like, we got things like Star Fox Zero and Paper Mario Kart Splash, but it's really this sort of go-big-or-go-home mentality for Nintendo this year. And when they went big, they went big. Like, I mean, I think the first sign of this may have been Pokemon in the Super Bowl. Like, if you're going to promote Pokemon, do it in the biggest possible way, the biggest marketing you can, the Super Bowl. And then from there, it just sort of snowballed. I mean, it just, keep happen- it just kept happening. Pokemon Go, absolutely huge. Switch reveal, absolutely huge. Mario Run, 50 million downloads, absolutely huge. The cross-marketing things that Nintendo did, even just like the Vans Nintendo shoes, surprisingly absolutely huge, like within that bubble of sneaker dumb. Even if you look at E3, they had no lows and in-betweens. They brought one big game, Breath of the Wild, and yes, absolutely huge response. It's It makes it hard to pick favorite games because there weren't little guys to choose from. It was just like, here's one or two giant things and then a hodgepodge of meh. So, normally Nintendo has, like, A-tier, B-tier, C-tier. This year, it was, like, A-tier on, like, three games. And then, eh, sort of some other ones. And that was, like, it. It was a weird year. I think it was a great year for Nintendo as a company and for brand recognition, like we were talking about Search earlier. But in terms of games, it was a weird year. So, with that said, there were still games worth playing, for sure. So, I guess you want to do 3DS first? Sure. Then we'll do Wii U. That works. Okay. Why don't you go first? Why? You're, because uh, I pointed at you with my fingers and said, why don't no you go first? That. Uh, you actually didn't. You just I did. I went, why don't you go first? I went like this. I went, why don't you go first? No, you're you're, just, you're just saying you're pointing at me, but you're not actually pointing at me. I did initially point at you. You weren't looking the right way. I was pointing I, I'm looking right at you. You never pointed. I did. I can't. We don't have a security camera. I can't point <laughs> it back. You just got to take my word for it. Fine. You want me to go first? Sure. Okay. <laughs> wow. Well, I just figured we can break up my monotony of me talking. Um, I, we, everyone loves hearing you talk. Apparently so. Yeah. Uh, hey, everyone that loves hearing me. Guess what my 3DS game of the year was? It was actually kind of a close race. So there were really only two games that were in contention for me. Fire Emblem Fates and Pokemon Sun and Moon. Sun, in my case. Uh, I'm going to be honest. Like, we talked about it so much on the podcast. There's not a whole lot I need to say about it, but uh, Pokemon Moon is hands down my game of the year. I'm, moon? I mean Sun. Wow. Pokemon, the game I haven't played, Pokemon Moon, way better than Sun. The opposite, <laughs> the opposite clock thing, mm, genius. His game of the year, he can't delicious. even get the name right. I can't even get the name right. No, but... Uh, Showed you how much of a year that was. Yeah, no, but, no, but like, Fates, I should... Like, Fire Emblem Fates is a close second, I should Like, they, the, the way they did the was whole split with the third? story... What? Was there even no, a <laughs> but it was a close second opposed to a far second. But, no, like, uh, I can't even think of what a third would be. There were other... Federation Force? Well, Federation Force I really enjoyed. That might be a third. Most people hate it. I liked it. But, you did um, lift off the games you bought this year. Yeah, I mean, you well, only really, literally, that's it. I mean, you only really weird, buy games you like. That's my point. Yeah. That's my point. It was a weird year for Nintendo. There was no... It was all just big stuff or nothing. Anyway, so Fire Emblem Fates was a close second simply because I thought the way they handled the story component and how you could, like, split the story or you could get the... You know, and then you go back. You basically have three games in one like that. Well, I have the special edition, so three games and one for me, three cartridges for other people, but two cartridges and a download. Anyway, that I thought was really cool and unique, and um, also Fire Emblem just has very good production values, and it's a fun strategy game, but the reason I picked Pokemon is it just, like, the whole Pokemon frenzy kind of just, I, I'm back in the fold. Like, Sun felt, it was Pokemon as I knew it, but it was also incredibly fresh in many ways. The Tropical thing was great. We... 
have been talking about it on this show for like nine months straight, which we do not do with very many games ever. And that's not because they haven't been announced. Like, Breath of the Wild has been announced. We don't overanalyze every single screenshot they release or every new little bit of footage, but we did for Pokemon Sun and Moon because it, it was just that they just nailed it. The new Pokemon designs, the going back to the well for Alolan designs, um, all the new gameplay features, the streamlining of everything, the enhanced graphics, finally getting rid of the grid for movement. I can keep going and going and going, but it just felt like this new experience that was both familiar and fresh at the same time, and it was really good as a result. Like, it was... It played to the nostalgia, but it also felt entirely new. It's what Breath of the Wild, I feel like, will be like in 2017 in the Zelda context. This is what Sun is in the Pokemon context. So, because of that, that's that's pretty much the main reason it gets my game of the year. They just... Game Freak nailed it, and what better time to nail it than the 20th anniversary? Like, it... I, I feel like I could dive deeper, but we did just give our reviews of it two episodes ago, so I'm not quite sure what there is to say. But, um, yeah, I just thought they nailed, like, from start, from every possible angle, it was really well done. Like, it, I, we had a period two or three years ago where we literally had an episode about, like, why we don't play Pokemon. And now here we are, and it's a complete 180. So I, I gotta hand it to them, like, Game Freak nailed it. So, so that's why it's my game of the year. Now, your 3DS game of the year... Those Nintendo. Yeah. But, so that, that's my 3DS game of the year. To yeah. specify, 3DS game of the year. It's funny, for Yours? a second, I actually thought I didn't have one, because Pokemon, like I said before, I feel like I technically still haven't started playing it, because the battling is the part I want to get into, and yeah. to get there, as I've already said, it takes a lot of work. But... Obviously, without a doubt, without a question, my game of the year is Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney Spirit of Justice because that game is literally perfection on digital. I do like how your game of the year... If you're going to make fun of me for accidentally saying Pokemon Moon, I'm going to say this. I do like how your game of the year was... Glances at paper, reads name. I saw you do that. I was making sure I wrote the time right because I actually wrote 30. Uh, oh, on our yeah. time sheet? Yeah, 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 yeah okay. Yeah. Well, fine. I, I, yeah, I just squeeze that zero. Okay, all right. Okay. Mm. I think you had to look up the name. I didn't. I'm just. That's. I'm not saying that to you. I'm just saying that to the Just, just, a, just a sidebar. Cause it's a lawyer game, so I, I take a sidebar. Would you like to tell us why you like <laughs> Spirit of Justice? He's just giving me a death stare right now. It's pretty. It's pretty reminiscent of Mario Kart 8, actually. Yeah, so the game is great. I love how it just expanded the story. Gave us like interesting routes to take with Apollo. I don't know. Just I loved every bit of it. There isn't. I'm again. I'm, we to talk about this game already but it's yeah, been a little while yeah i mean i i enjoyed all 40 hours of it 40 hours of it, it was a it was pretty meaty wasn't this one with the crazy plot twist don't spoil it no spoilers well, but... i mean they all have crazy plot no but twists. this one in yeah. particular i thought oh uh, i mean it wasn't um or maybe as it crazy as the last one but i mean it definitely was it's more of a revelation that's just kind of like whoa this is really cool man but like I said, this is also like one of those games that if you're a fan of the series, you will appreciate it more as someone that, compared to someone that just plays this one out of nowhere. Because if you don't, the plot twist isn't that kind of great. It's just like, oh, that's cool, I guess. So it's your 3DS game of the year that was many years in the making, in a way. Yeah, I mean... Because all of it built built up to this, in terms yeah, of the story. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like the Star Wars movie. Like, there's already seven of them. I'm sure like if someone... I'm sure a lot of people will say, like, oh, you can't really judge four, five, and six by themselves because you kind of have to watch them all together because they're all actually for about 20 years you could oh yeah yeah <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, yeah but i mean if you have someone because one two three would might have been a better example but they were all like a year apart from each other or what wait no wait weren't you saying you have to judge them all as a, a unit of seven no oh you meant in sets of three yeah because uh, a lot of those people yeah. like some of the people i mean anecdotally but some of the people that have asked like 
do treat them as one long movie. So they're just like, oh, they're just in different parts. Like this gotcha. one, like, isn't as good. What if you don't combine this other part? Right, blah blah right, blah. Right. I thought you meant. I thought you meant if you look at four, five, six without seven, one, two, three, it would not hold up. I'm like, I think it did for like 25 years, <laughs> but that's mm. Phoenix, right? Yep. What's Phoenix your? Uh, what about on the Wii U side? Because it's been a um, real, it's been a really weird, weird, really weird year for Wii U. I think there have only been, if I count correctly, if I, a total I wouldn't of twenty. Use weird, I say disappointing. There's only been, if I'm not mistaken, twenty total games on shelves this year for Wii U. New games, twenty. That's it. Yeah. So it makes it very of hard. Those to twenty, pick. I only bought one of them, and that one was actually a game for Elvis because he's more the the Paper Mario guy. So. I basically didn't get a game this year except for Shantae's Half Genie Hero, which I kickstarted, which I just got the code for recently, which I finally was able to download today. Expect impressions next episode. So obviously I still have to play it. But a game that I did play for over half the year, like full force, like getting really into it, was definitely Super Smash Bros. for Wii U. Like that, in a weird way, is my game of the year again for the second year, well, maybe third did, year in they, a row. They, they did update it like that so, game is, that in game, 2016. Yeah, that so. game is just that good like it got a recent like i got its last patch i believe this year and that one gave a significant boost to bowser obviously my favorite character which made him go from character you play because you like bowser to a viable competitive character because it gave him a crazy up to up air kill and oh that just made it that much more funner funner more fun but, more fun. Yeah, more fun. More fun. So, just really, really like that game for the first half of the year until it came to the point where, like, I'm playing this game too much. I need to do more animation, so I have to stop. And, and you haven't played your Wii U since. <laughs> well, it's also not really been accessible. Well, yeah, yeah. But, it's been, you were remodeling, yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, yeah, it's funny. Smash I mean, that's because... And what can be said about Smash Brothers? Bowser. I'm done. <laughs> I thought you were going to say something that couldn't be said about Smash Brothers, but it was just a hanging rhetorical <laughs> question. Um, well, no, I think I honestly think that the fact that you p- p- picked Smash Brothers speaks so much about how weird of a year the Wii U had, how disappointing of a year the Wii U had. Um, I mean, for me, there were two. I think I got two Wii U games this year: um, Paper Mario Color Splash and Star Fox Zero. And this choice is going to be a bit controversial among some folk, you. But I think my game of the year, weird controls aside. Is Star Fox Zero. For the, my Wii U game of the year. I need to specify Wii U game of the year. You need to put that signifier on it. Uh, or qualifier on it. So, here's the thing about Star Fox. The okay. concept of how they did the two controls, where one, you know, you have the gamepad gyro, and that's your first-person view, and then you have cinematic third-person views on the TV. Not the greatest idea. In retrospect, probably better not to do that in the, in the future. That might be why the Switch only has one screen, in part. Because, like, you can't shoehorn things quite like that. Shoehorn is my word of the episode, by the way, if you haven't noticed. But I've said it like six times. But with that said, they did make that choice, and they kind of made it work. It's not the choice I would make, but once it's there, it, it kind of works. It has some advantages. It helps with aiming a little, sort of. It creates some cool cinematic moments, sort of. But it overall, like it, they were able to use this bizarro control scheme to create what I thought was a very fun, more like old school Star Fox game. It had the voice actors back. It had kind of the silly plot back. It had uh, 
some of the locations and whatnot from the from 64 back, but entirely reinterpreted in new ways. It was basically the Star Fox 64 sequel I always wanted, and Star Fox 64 is one of my all-time favorite, if not favorite, N64 games. So being able to revisit that world, but now do it with much better graphics and with more like elaborate plot or more elaborate like story cinematics and stuff, that was a really fun experience for me as a Star Fox fan. Again, it was a little hindered by the controls, but the controls actually didn't hurt as bad, like didn't hinder as much as they could have. So the fact, this is such a weird qualifier for like, so they, the controls were bad, but they weren't so bad that they ruined the game. But that's kind of it. Like the controls were weird. At the time I was playing it in April when it came out and we talked about it here on the show, I was like, oh yeah, the controls you can deal with. The more I played it, the you do get used to it. You can deal with it. But you also at some point just kind of look at the game and go, why? Why are these controls here? And there's no real answer for that. But for me, that did not take away from the game enough to really hurt the experience. I still enjoyed it immensely. And it comes with Star Fox day, Guard, that's all that and that's all that matters. And that it comes with Star all... Fox Guard, and Star Fox Guard actually puts the gamepad to really good use, and it's really fun. So if you combine them into one package, as they physically did when they sold it in stores, that package is my game of the year. For Wii U. Mm. For Wii U. Now, again, there's improvements they could have made, things they could have done differently, but if you take it at face value and you compare it to, say, the only other game I played, which was Color Splash, I still think Star Fox has the edge. Color Splash has a lot going for it. Um... It's more of an adventure game. It's more like an adventure zelda sort of thing where you collect cards than it is an RPG, which is fine, and I enjoyed it. It has really good writing, but just something about Star Fox is like a return to form in every way but controls, and and that was just really gratifying to, to play through. So that's why it gets my pick over Color Splash. Hmm. Now, I'm going to throw a wrench into this real quick. So I we gave our 3DS games of the year, our Wii U games of the year, but neither of those are my actual game of the year. Your overall game of the year? My overall game of the year Whoa. is on iPhone. It's still Nintendo. It still counts. It's Pokemon Go. Now, almost in the same vein as my Star Fox thing, I need to put some, some qualifiers on this. Yes, Pokemon Go is buggy. Yes, Pokemon Go has uh, issues with player retention and even keeping my interest sometimes. Yes, Pokemon Go makes weird things, weird decisions like the uh, egg thing I talked about about an hour ago here on this episode. And yes, Pokemon Go gets repetitive. But I don't know if there has been a game that has captivated me for a prolonged period of time, even if it was in quick bursts, in quite the same... Not just me, but me and my friends in quite the same way that Go did. Go was like... And this is true, obviously, on a broader scale. Go was kind of a social phenomenon. Or a uh, pop culture phenomenon, I should say. It was, a, it was quite the thing. It was everywhere. But as someone whose entire childhood was consumed by Pokemon, I was like the prototypical Pokeholic. I was more than prototypical. I was extreme Pokeholic. I was like, you found me on street corners just with stacks of Pokemon cards. Just a wreck. No, but I was like so into it. And to see it come back around like this and be in such a novel way and such a unique thing where uh, AR and GPS are actually being used in tandem in a really smart way opposed to like Nintendo randomly being like, Face Raiders on your 3DS or whatever, like actually using AR in a logical way, that was really cool. It was cool to have it come full circle. So it's also my picture somewhat nostalgia based this year, but that's just that's just how the year's gone. But it was like there was no, there has been no experience quite like Pokemon Go prior to it or since it, and there's just a lot of fun that was had. Even if it was for like 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there, doesn't a game for me the game of the year isn't the game I necessarily sat down and invested hundreds of hours into over a prolonged period it's the one that i kept coming back to and the one that when i think what was 2016 for me in gaming that's the one that pops up and in this case it's pokemon go 
and like you know 10 minutes here 20 minutes there i'll go for a walk with coworkers to catch some pokemon even today uh we the weekend it came out uh, you and i and a couple of our friends I think they're like six of us went to go get brunch in culver city and they're like let's go on a pokemon safari four hours later we're still there and there's people times where vulpixes are and everything and it, it was just like it's just you don't have a gaming experience like that ever I have never experienced anything like that. I don't think I'll ever experience anything quite the same now that we're in the post-Pokemon Go world. But what it was was the right thing at the right moment, and they nailed it. And being able to go experience Pokemon in this new way in different places and catch up Pokemon in different places and whatnot, was just, it's just really cool. They, of course, the game did not work properly for half that time, and you know you had to spend... You had to waste all sorts of money to get Pokeballs to do weird gimmicky things. So they just choose that today this Pidgey that's level that CP level ten will require six Pokeballs when normally he only takes one. Like whatever, but it's just it, it was just a really unique experience that I have not. I I don't know how better to word it. It's just like it's a really cool thing. It was it captured my attention in a way that games rarely do. Like I will sit and play a game, but I will rarely just I wish like games captured your attention like that. They do sometimes more often, but all the time. Uh, certain the right games do. Mario Galaxy is one that captured my attention in a major way. Pokemon Sun is capturing my attention. Um, but don't ask me what island I'm on. Or I'm not saying. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's embarrassing. But uh, no, my point it's is. Long gap my, my, and my, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I'm, I'm just thinking off the top of my head the ones I that really stick. Uh, Star Fox 64. Uh, Whoa, man. Keep increasing those gaps. <laughs> uh, Super Mario Sunshine. Wind Waker. Oh, one per generation. <laughs> no, no. I'm just thinking of the ones that really. Yeah, I'm basically thinking back to each system. But my point is. I don't know what my point is anymore. Just Go was really cool. It, it's not the best game, but it was the right game at the right time with the right attention, and it really, for me, embodied what 2016 was in gaming. It also, on this is kind of a weirder level, but on like, just as someone who is an armchair analyst of Nintendo and loves talking about what Nintendo does, this was the turning point. Pokemon Go was the pivot. I know Nintendo didn't directly make it. I know Mario runs theirs, but as far as I'm concerned, Pokemon Go was the pivot. That was the start of this new Nintendo. So being able to and you didn't realize it at the time, but looking back, you realize it. So looking at it and being like, oh, this was such a cool experience for me. And it was like really this the cusp of this whole new Nintendo. Just kind of this one-two punch that very rare to see replicated. So, um, yeah. So my overall pick of the year, Star Fox Zero was great. Pokemon Sun is great. Pokemon Go. I mean, technically, in the case of Sun, it's a significantly better game. Just a better game than Go. But it did not. It wasn't what Go was for me, personally. So, mm. so that's where I'm at. Oh, that was my game of the year. Your overall game of the year. Yeah. Well, I guess now I feel obligated to pick one too. Since sure. You put, since you put that out there. Sure. So, I guess unlike Jason, my overall game of the year isn't a Nintendo game. And you might have already guessed what it is. Wait, wait, wait. Let me guess. Let me guess. Let me guess. Hearthstone. I was going to say SOCOM 4 for the PlayStation 3 Ooh, from 2011 or whatever. Or 2009. Nah. <laughs> yeah, Hearthstone. Uh, uh, this game has had an interesting journey with me. It came out in 2014 where I straight up refused to play because I'm like, oh, like, this game looks dumb. I already went through my whole Yu-Gi-Oh, Magic the Gathering, whatever. Like, I don't need to start a new card game. 2015, mm-hmm. enough people that I knew played it. And I'm like, all right, I'll give it a try. I played it on and off. Couldn't really get into it. But for whatever reason, 2016, everything just kind of changed. And I got, I mean, yeah, I've talked about it enough on the pocket. And then Jason definitely knows how addicting it was. Like, once I felt, once I... He's had to delete, delete it from his phone at least four separate occasions. Yeah, like, I'm just chiming in with I don't that. think I've ever, yeah, like, I, the last time I got this addicted to a game was when I was, like, in my peak of, like, playing Pokemon Diamond when I was, like, doing the whole breeding competitive or maybe even Smash Brothers, but this game really grabbed the hold of me, and I guess because I do love 
like trading card games and this one is kind of epitomizes like all the features that I do live that I do live <laughs> that I do like from all those other games mm-hmm. but it puts them in your phone and you could play it anywhere I like playing it on my desktop I like taking it on my phone when I'm allowing myself to because that game is just so fun and I like that it's free to play so if you're dedicated enough you can get everything you want for free without ever paying a single dime but I've enjoyed it enough and put enough hours into it that I've put some money into it not a ton maybe like 50 bucks like what I would pay for like a that's more than I put into Go I've only put like 12 into Go because I mean on and off I've been playing the game since last year but this year I definitely put a ton of time into it like I think I don't remember when it was but I think Jason came over once and he saw how many matches I've played and then, well how many matches I've won but he thought like, well you've played over a thousand matches and I'm like oh no those are matches I've won so there's actually more than that and each match in Hearthstone takes about like 10-15 minutes to go through uh-huh. and those were just in competitive mode those don't even count the casual mode matches or the tavern brawl matches or whatever yeah yeah, I don't know. And I don't even care about, like, World of Warcraft or any of those things. Like, this was the first Blizzard game I ever played. And I've grown to, like, a lot of these characters so much that I've had reverse... Well, I, I always call it reverse nostalgia, but, like, I'll see, like... I'll randomly see gameplay from World of Warcraft, and I'll see a character... And you'll suddenly be interested. <laughs> and, I'll, and I'll see a character, they're like, oh, it's that card from, from Hearthstone. But, like, no, yeah. it's that character that has a card in Hearthstone. Like, the other way around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, I don't know, it's just crazy. Like, this game, it definitely... I just love how I went from kind of preemptively despising it to full-on loving it never judge a book by its cover yeah like this game is definitely changed oh i should say and i've definitely gone oh my god this game can be so frustrating because like it's definitely a game where you have to play the meta or go home like you can't complain because you're gonna lose if you don't play the top decks right but in spite of that it's still fun i have one thing about pokemon go i forgot here's how you know a game has really resonated with you in a way that very few do i should not care about ditto I still haven't gotten a ditto. It's been a month, and it bothers me still, like every day. Yeah, Little it, kids count their dittos like, right away. I know. It literally bothers me. Just like, I'll open the app, avoiding you. I'll open the app. There'll be an Ekinger Rattata, which turn into ditto, and I will catch it. And if it's not a ditto, if it's not a ditto, I just close the app again. I'm like, no. <laughs> and I just try again later. Like, it actually actively bothered me. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. One day I'll get a ditto, and it'll be glorious. I have a holiday Pikachu. He has a nice little hat. He can evolve into a Holiday Raichu, who also has a nice little hat. I need to catch two Holiday Pikachu so I can evolve one and keep... Ooh, I need to do that. Well, that's what I'm doing with the rest of my 2016. But we'll be back in 2017 (laughs) with our next episode on uh, January 8th. It's our final pre-Switch presentation episode, which means the last roundup of rumors before the big event. We're also going to have the Shantae Half Genie Hero impressions, since you'll be playing that. Plus, as always, all the latest news. So uh, to make sure you don't miss it, as always, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play Music, or any podcasting app you may use. You can follow us on Twitter at RamNintendo. And you can follow each of us to hear our own individual gaming or non-gaming thoughts I on Twitter. I am JSR7. Angel is Wero, W-E-R-R-O, underscore O. One day I'm going to have you say that. Never. Okay. Uh, but yeah, so we'll be back in two weeks' time. And I did want to say, it, it 2016... This is it for 2016, and it has been a pretty amazing one for us personally, like on the show. We've seen our listenership grow leaps and bounds beyond, I think, what we ever anticipated it would be, which is super cool. It's really in the last like six months, so thank you, Pokemon Go. Thank you, Switch. Thank you, Mario Run. Thank you, Nintendo Search Resurgence, and more appropriately, and the one that actually matters, thank you to all of you for listening. It's been 
really cool to see the numbers go up and to know that there are people out there that are curious what we have to say about these things. And hopefully you continue to find the show entertaining and informative through 2017. So with that, happy holidays, happy new year from, I think, both Angel and myself. Do you confirm that you're wishing them these things? Sure. Okay, cool. And we will see you guys in 2017. Now, back to the